Hello, and welcome to another episode of the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club. My name is Tyler Bell. How the hell are you? I am the host, writer, creator of the West Side Fairy Tales. And uh, today we have another great episode coming up uh, on the feed. And this is an interview between myself and uh, Nick Boone, a horror artist, concept artist, horror creator uh, with a great online presence um, whose work is really amazing. I found him through Twitter and you should absolutely check him out. I I was particularly interested in talking to him um, because of a lot of political things that are happening right now. And and if you are the kind of person who is um, kind of just like afraid of political conversation, if it's boring for you, um, if, if you, if you've had to articulate in your mind, this idea and you get, you get huffy about it, like, I don't understand why there's politics and everything these days that turn this episode off now and go away. This is not for you. Just, just, just leave. Hurry up. Why are you, why are you still listening? Go, go to the next episode. Okay. That was your, that was, that was your grace period. Okay. Um, for everybody else that's sticking around, um, if, if you're not well aware of this by now, the, the, the West Side Fairy Tales is, is extremely political. Uh, if you've made it to this point, listening chronologically through the podcast, um, you may have noticed that in the entire first section of Sin Carriers, I was, is about killing Pinkertons. <laughs> Which is which is an inherently political statement. The presence of a Pinkerton in in, in anything in, implies a lot of stuff historically. If you if you don't understand that or you don't know about these things, um, I, I you know I, I guess that that that's fine to a degree. But I really have to hammer home in, in every way, shape, and form that the West Side Fairy Tales is very very political. And um, I invited. Nick Boone on today to talk about something that is extremely important to us as creators. Um, and that is, uh, uh, uh basically uh, the exploitation of labor and the, um, the, the basically illegal, um, use of generative AI technologies, um, uh, to create, bad looking and, uh, oftentimes, um, criminally made art. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about necessarily, if you've just been hearing about AI, I'm going to explain some things. This might get repeated later. Um, AI generative AI is not generative. Actually, it doesn't generate anything other than a, a product at the end, but none of that's original content. What, Generative AI does is it uses a search algorithm based on the query that you put in to the uh, to the program. It then um, searches through a database, an internal database of other people's stolen art, and then um, uses basically photo moshing techniques um, from Photoshop and stuff, and, and and mesh alignment and grid stuff, and and puts together a uh um a collage basically it's it's collaging of of other people's work and then puts it out in a way that would make somebody that doesn't understand how these things work think that they've created something if you've ever used generative ai if you ever use generative ai going forward you have to understand in a fundamental way you are creating nothing that, that it is you're not making things 
And so one of the major concerns right now in, in my industry and in Nick's industry throughout all of the creative industries is um, the, the, the people that are already exploiting labor, um, people that have money, uh, primitive accumulation, basically they've, they've, they have resources oftentimes because their parents, 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 you know, did some insanely evil shit at the beginning of American history, you know, and, and they've always sort of had access or, or, or been a part of wealth. These people, thanks to certain laws that were passed, particularly in the 1980s, um, now have no constraints against their ability to abuse the labor underneath them and uh, to steal basically wantonly, you know, from people. One of the biggest impedances to nonstop profit in, in capitalist free market societies is the cost of labor. Human time, your life, is a limited commodity. So the amount of time that you spend doing stuff, um, that's, that's an, that's an extremely valuable. Okay. If you've ever been like, man, I'm wasting my life working at this, uh, fucking Walmart. Well, you actually are, you're not being compensated for literally the only time you will ever have ever period ever in the finite history of the universe. Um, to stand and walk around Walmart and stack shelves for 16 hours a day. Uh, you're, you're not being compensated well for that. During this podcast, we're going to be talking excessively about these sorts of things. The word socialism will come up very, very often. This is, this is a socialist podcast. This is not a centrist podcast uh, by any means. I am, I am pro-labor. I am pro-individual rights. Um, I am pro trans. I am pro LGBT. I am pro choice. I, I don't know. I, I, I'm if, if, if bands of golden iron doesn't convince you that I am for no fault divorce, I, I don't know what else will. Uh, these, these are things that I've been articulating through the stories for forever. Um, there may be one or two of you left that is you're just gasping. Um, and freaked out right now. And this is making you very unsettled. I'm very sorry for that. I'm, I'm, I truly am sorry, but as I gave you the warning earlier. So if you're still here, um, that's what this interview is going to be about. If this stuff is not interesting to you, um, we do get into minutia. We get out there in the weeds about, um, prescriptive things that we should try to be doing. Um, and, in in my mind, this is a absolutely fucking awesome conversation. Nick is extremely well-read on all of these subjects. Just understand that this is all coming from a place of we've had jobs in multiple different work, multiple different places. And, uh, you know, this isn't just speaking out of uh, idealism and, and, and a sweetheart understanding of the world. If you don't like what I say in this interview, you can always come and talk to me. I will have a conversation with you. If you are, and I literally mean it, westsidefairytales at gmail.com, reach out, send me a message. I'll, I'll chat you through these things. If they're bizarre, worrying, um, confusing, if you think uh, people are being naive or misled, anything like that, talk to me first. I, I'm asking you guys um, because this is an extremely important thing to me. Um, the, stuff like this is is literally how I get paid. Ultimately, this is me talking about uh, the value of m what I create um, in regards to to markets, to individuals, to um, you know uh, 
richer people, the the wealthy owning class of people who would seek to exploit my content um, at a disadvantageous disadvantageous disadvantageous. I don't know how to say that right. Disadvantageous rate to you know uh, the the actual value of what I'm creating, and I think that there's a lot to be learned here. This is a very long, very 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 long. Uh, lead in just to let you guys know this is some dry political theory coming up um, and, and some like really deeply personal um, and powerfully held opinions regarding the states of things. So, like I said, this is one of your last chances to hop off the bus if you don't want to hear any of this stuff. But I honestly think it's a really good, really fascinating interview. And um, I hope you guys enjoy. So, without further ado, the interview. Okay, everybody, and we are here with Nick Boone, uh, horror artist, uh, concept artist, and you know I'm not even going to get it. Nick, if you want to introduce yourself, um, welcome to the uh, West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So I'm I'm Nick Nick Boone. Uh, I go by Meet on Twitter sometimes. Um, I'm a horror artist. Uh, I work in the game industry. Uh, I do concept art, illustration. I've done UI, uh, and I'm also a socialist agitator. Yes, <laughs> which, which is which is one of the big reasons we got him over here. It's 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 a trifecta. Um, and oh, uh, I, I should also clarify, I do use they them pronouns. Oh, okay. Sorry, they them. My bad. All good. Um. So uh, you, you've worked on some pretty notable titles. I know I saw League of Legends in there, and then I, I completely unprofessionally forgot to get the rest of them, if there's any one. Uh, yeah, so I, I've worked on League of Legends. I was doing some stuff for Fortnite recently. Um, I worked on a Spellbreak, um, uh, Dauntless. Yeah. Nice. So, you know, a, a lot of people have, like, some relationship with art, obviously, you know, pretty much everybody at some point has been to like a museum or at least made like a finger painting, but being a, a working artist is, is not the same sort of thing. You know, you have to kind of mix literally business with pleasure, you know, in that sort of respect. So how did you, uh, can you, can you describe like basically what you do and how, how you arrived at it, uh, creatively, creatively and professionally? Yeah, so I, uh, that's kind of a big question. I, I have to go back quite a ways uh, to to find the start of that one. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I was really into you know Magic the Gathering, which was brand new at that time. Um, and I would look at you know the the little instructional booklets that you would get with games, and sometimes they would have the art or the models and the little book telling you how to play the game. Uh, and I just was struck with this kind of magical feeling like, oh, people do this. You know, they they, they draw and it, it ends up and, you know, people like like me play it and love it. Uh, so ever since I was really young, you know, I wanted to do this. Uh, but I think when you're a kid and you're like, oh, I want to work in the game industry. Uh, you know what that looks like is is very different than the reality of it. Um. And so I had this this feeling, you know, when I set out to do this, that one day I would be able to, you know, make my own thing. You know, or I'd be able to contribute to something that I I really loved. Um, and the reality of it is that there there's been a kind of industrial tailorism uh, in the art world starting in the 90s. So by the time I was even eligible to start working and I was an adult and had the training that I needed to get into it, 
uh, a lot of the more open creative aspects of the job were more or less gone. Um, you know, things have been stratified and are, are very rigid in most cases. Uh, I've been telling people now that it's it's closer to a factory line than it is a, a you know, creative discussion. Um, so you have, you know, there's still room for creativity. There's still room for experimentation, but it is very uh, locked in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you basically kind of get like an order. You know, uh, is that is that kind of it? like, yeah, we need these six drawings. Don't get fancy with it. Just bring me that kind of thing. Kind of. So so the way that it works now, like if I let's say I'm doing concept art, right, I'm doing skins for League or something. Right. Um, They might have you, you know, look over some kind of a document that has, you know, the style guide and the kind of shape language that you're going to be using um, you know, the in-game models that they already have, you know, a write-up of the lore. And it's expected that not only are you are you doing the art uh in that style to their specifications of what they want, but um also that sometimes those designs are already done for you. Um so you're you're expected to kind of just translate them onto a new thing. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I think it's it's it is very rigid. There there's obviously like, you know, a couple of different ways that you can handle something like if you're doing a, a UI asset, you know, and you're you're going to try one that has a shield and one that has a boot or something and you're taking one part of a design or another, um, you know, that might be one way that you get some amount of creative uh, say. But for the most part, it's it's a lot of this stuff is is handed to you from somebody up higher or or closer to a leadership position mm-hmm. uh, who makes those calls ahead of time. So do you uh, do you just draw them or do you do you like CAD them out? I think Blender. I don't know the exact uh, modeling stuff that gets used. I think it really depends on the job. Um, sometimes I'll use three D. Uh, sometimes I'll just paint them directly. <laughs> nice. um, yeah, it really depends on on what I'm working with or or what the specification of that job is. Is there any, uh, is there any, like, uh, do you try to sneak in horror stuff? You know, League is, um, for everybody that doesn't know, it's, it's not exactly a, a horror first property, but do you try to sneak in some like, Hey man, we're doing acid blood today, you know? Yeah. I, I, every, every opportunity that I get, I try to find some way to inject something that I like into it because mm-hmm. it's, it's really the only thing that I ever get to have any control over is if I can manage to get something under the radar, uh, and it hasn't really worked. Uh, there, there's been some times uh, there was something on a Pentakill when I was doing some stuff for for League. They had this this concert where they were um, they were working on these you know giant statues of gods, and nice. uh, I got to do some some interesting design work on that. Um, and I was I was really happy with with being able to come up with these really fucked up ideas. <laughs> I got through. That's but, awesome. Um, you know, yeah, they they did have to gut them a little bit, you know, because you can't can't exactly uh, throw in you know guts and you know, mm-hmm. a game that's got to go through an approval process. Yeah, uh, I you know I, honestly even uh, now that you say it, kind of from uh, the consumer side of things, as a, as a as a sometimes gamer myself, I think I kind of do see um, some of your issues. I guess you would say down the pipeline when it does come to skins, especially like. Now that skins are so big, you know, as, as a money making endeavor, um, there is a lot kind of uh, of, you know, just kind of like recolor vibe, if you know what I mean. Uh, especially like I played Apex. I don't know if you if you know anyone that works on Apex, 
I don't mean to to rustle any feathers, uh, but they will do like the 15 different versions of just one model with like, hey, green and like, hey, also green, slightly moving pattern. But that will be six dollars, you know? Yeah. And a, a lot of that in, in complete fairness is not the artist's fault. Um, oh, and I don't blame them. Yeah, it's it's very often the decision of somebody in uh, production or above who um, just says, you know, oh, we. We decided we want to milk this for every cent that it's got. <laughs> mm, yeah. uh, and we need it next week, too. So, you know, good luck with that. Gotcha. Yeah. Hey, what are you doing? What are you working on personally? I know I've, I've seen some of your concept stuff, which is really what, what drew me over. You're one um, that I really, really like, and you've posted it a couple times, is the uh, guy inspecting the the crashed car. The like light work on that's amazing. Uh, and if anybody, I, I know this is an audio um, thing, but if you guys are, if I'm trying to like paint a picture for you, he uses really, really like brash strokes and like a lot of intense lighting in some of these. And it, it really, really captures the vibe very powerfully. It's, it's really, really cool stuff. And you guys need to check it out again, meet on Twitter, but please. Yeah. It's a uh, at Nick Boone as well. If you ever, if uh, oh, Nick Boone, I sorry. ever changed my name. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, that kind of stuff is, I, I, I have kind of three things I do outside of work. Typically, mm-hmm. um, I have one-off kind of mood pieces where sometimes I have a story I, I'm experimenting with doing, or just kind of a vibe that I, I want to capture. And I try to get as specific as possible with the feeling that I want the viewer to be left with. Um, and a lot of the times that feeling is, is somewhat dark. I'm experimenting with some you know, kind of abstract sense of like, well, why should you be afraid? You know, like in the piece that you were talking about, it's this kind of cop car in the woods. It shouldn't be there. It doesn't make any sense that there would be a car in the woods. Um, and, you know, there's something inside of it, but it's, it's this, this kind of hesitance of like, you know, should I get closer to it or should I turn around and run and forget I ever saw this? Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of stuff really, uh, I, I find very interesting. Um, and so I'm, I'm also working on my own game projects. I have no release date for them. The title is a work in progress. Uh, I have been working with my friend Lance uh, and another group of friends for several years, learning how to code, you know, learning how to, how to put something together so that maybe, you know, I, I don't think it'll ever be enough to, to sustain me. But I, I do think it'll be interesting to, to experiment with, with being able to create a finished product that can be played. Mm-hmm. Um, as an art medium, you know, and, and that kind of goes to sort of our, uh, our, our, our collective vibe between me and you. And that is really just, uh, you know, ownership of your own labor sort of stuff and how much more rewarding it is to kind of go to that. You know, obviously you have to like, you have to work to live, but you really don't want to live to work. And um, having side projects like that, especially if you could ever monetize it is like really the big dream, you know? Not everybody's going to be the next team cherry and make hollow Knight, but there is going to be a next team cherry. Uh, and that would be amazing. C- can you tell me a little bit about like what kind of game you're trying to make? I think I've seen some sprites from it. Yeah. So uh, I'm actually working on a, a 3d game right now. Uh, it's a first person shooter um, kind of uh, in the, in the realm of, I don't know if you've ever heard of the game observer, um, but uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, mix between you know something that's more resident evil and something that's more silent hill mm-hmm. uh 
I, I feel like a lot of horror has leaned very hard into the action. And what I'm trying to do is create something that's a little bit more restrained. Uh, and it's, it's pretty abstract right now. Uh, I'm, I've been calling it Demiurge. Um, and it's, it's set in the future, you know, on a far distant planet where um, people are struggling with the class contradictions of that time. Nice. Uh, and I, I really wanted to play around with, you know, what socialism looks like and how it's, it's not like a single state that we get to, but, but an era, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, no, I, I get, I, I, uh, I kind of have that same thing too. You know, it's the, uh, the it's it literally it's like the utopic dream kind of, and, uh, the, the, the issues that you're going to have to overcome once you get past the, just like absurdities of the current, like false scarcity epidemic. You know what I mean? Like get past, yeah. uh, okay. You know, uh, I, we're throwing away 75,000 tons of potatoes and there's hungry people. I, I feel like we could probably figure this out with trains. I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not a genius, I, but I feel like I'm being fucked with. <laughs> Yeah, I actually so I actually had some like two statements to make on on this. The the first is earlier you were you were saying that uh you know the dream is to you know make your own project or monetize it and maybe you know escape the capitalist the capitalist reality that we're mm-hmm. under. Um and I can't deny that there's some feeling of that in me and in most people I meet. But I do want to specifically point to that and call that an owning class uh mentality. True. That there's this idea that like one day you're going to do your thing uncompromisingly and then you'll be at the top and you'll have a team where you direct your vision. And what I've found is that uh, something that's very enjoyable that goes underappreciated is unless you're a solo dev, in which case, you know, great. That's that's wonderful. But um, the second that you have at least one other person working with you, it's like the collaboration of your work together becomes this new, uh, beautiful thing where you all get equal say. Mm-hmm. And even when the say is, is unequal in some way, it's, it's been arrived at, you know, democratically through discussion with them. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I find that a lot of, a lot of what I'm enjoying right now <laughs> is, is trying to find ways to balance that feeling with, with this kind of, you know, staunch want like, Oh, I want it to look like this and I want it to feel like this or, or what have you. Uh, but, uh, the, the second thing I wanted to point out is, is, you know, under, under that kind of, you know, future socialism, right. One of the things that, that really, uh, gets me about how games are made or why they're made or the process of it is I, I can't tell you how many studios right now, are just burning through money and then they freak out later because they they're so poorly managed. The distribution of labor is so incredibly mismanaged that we're making worse products for it. Yeah. Uh, I've, I, I've heard that. Um, there's another person who I've actually got, I'm, I'm trying to interview and she's an indie game dev. Um, and she just released a microscopic game, two or three people, I think total on her dev team. One of whom was like part time, and then a studio came to her with an offer and they were like, what could you do with 150 people and like $2 million? And like, none, that's terrifying. I don't, what do you mean 150 people, you know? And it's just this, uh, it's the idea of scale, you know, and can I dump all of my money into this and just gamble to the moon, which is why we have 
HBO dumping all of its, you know, minor properties that are just barely cracking over. They're like, I want everything or nothing, you know, and, and it's just to the moon, to the moon, to the moon, to the moon. And everything's collapsing right underneath them. Yeah. What's what's fascinating to me about that specifically, too, is that you would think that under their their philosophy, their stated goal of competition or what have you, that they would be dumping in money to experimental products uh, to see what would stick. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the reality of it is they're just kind of throwing money everywhere and they're more likely to throw more money at things that play it safe. So the irony is that they spend more money to create a product that is inevitably not interesting enough to really break the bank in the way that they're, they're hoping will happen. Oh no, um, yeah. And it's, it's just a death by a thousand cuts. And it's wild too. Cause you can see that, that it's provably true. Basically what we're saying, if you just look at steam devs, you know, uh, there's random people making the most bogus game. If you just described it out loud, if you say five nights at Freddy's, just as a title and then tell people what it's about. And you told it to like a triple a game developer 10 years ago. Is it actually yeah, 10 years ago, the year before it came out, they'd be like, that's, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Now it's, it's like the, one of the biggest horror properties that has ever existed. And it was like a 10 megabyte game, you know, insanely big. Um, and then of course it's doing that ultimately it, it made, (laughs) it became what it shouldn't be. And that's just a series of iterations of, you know, decreasing value as they try to absolutely capitalize the, uh, the, the, the property to oblivion, which is, you know, Scott Cawthon is who he is, but, um, you know, I, I guess yeah, you're 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 100 right, is what I'm saying. <laughs> you also get a lot of a lot of interesting things happening on on ju- just the incentive for these things to make money, the incentive to escape having to to work. You know, really, that feeling drives a lot of people to make less creative decisions, not more creative decisions. I, I so believe like when, that 100 percent is. Well, well, yeah, but when, I guess what I'm getting at is that when something does take off, you don't even need the venture capitalists and the big money, and I mean they're inevitably going to fuck it all up but mm-hmm. uh even on on the individual level or the the small team level we we keep seeing people just making copies you know really of of things that were successful that year i mean how many times did we see marble hornets ripoffs you know oh my gosh yeah <laughs> oh my wow that's a deep cut that's a pro deep cut i like that yeah, there's, a, <laughs> there's a youtube channel called in praise of shadows that did a video on this that i thought was pretty great because under the surface of that is really how capitalism is killing art yes um i agree it's actually it's most evident in my my actual technical field of publishing it's insane uh they, they tell you straight up basically like um it is it, it it's literally like this is a monopoly we're never going to call it that and if you want in I don't want to hear anything original, literally only describe things to me as shit that has already existed. If you have anybody that is like your hero or like the person who is your like writing person that you want to be like, they better have been famous and massively successful with like 10 million sales in the last six months. Or you're just, you get like, you get bodied out and they're up front with it. And like, uh, you know, with the WGA strike and all that stuff going on, like fucking hell yeah, union power. Um, people are starting to notice this more, but the agenting system and all that and the editor system and publishing is basically like 17 layers of gatekeeping, which 
primarily keeps out anybody who especially doesn't have a college education, but like if you can write a book, they don't give a fuck. And then after that, anybody that doesn't have, you know, basically like a dad in publishing uh, or, or, or an address on the Upper East side of Manhattan, you're just, you don't get to play the game and it's, oh, it's yeah. miserable. Oh, and so yeah. you see the same shit over and over and over and over again. And th- this is true in the art world too. I mean, there was a period of time where agents were more common. They're, they're less common today, especially for what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the way that we think about art, I, I think is changing. You know, our artists are being proletarianized in, mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think that they're quite aware of yet. Um, to, to illustrate what I mean here, when I was going to college, there was this idea that you would kind of have your style, but it was expected that you'd be able to chameleon into other things so that you could get any job, right? Because that's just the reality. I mean, you might have to work on Care Bears one day, right? In order mm-hmm. to work on the thing that you actually think is cool, you know, the next day. Um, but there was still this idea that, that, you would have some kind of creative uh, say. You'd be able to add to the story in some way or to the mechanics in some way. Something that, that had a little piece of you. Yes. And what, what people, I think, are starting to realize is that it, even on the director level, I mean, if you, if you went and you talked to film directors or VFX artists, you'll find that like, they're not making these choices anymore. Some bean counter walks into the room and says, move that couch two meters to the left. Yeah. And you do. Um, and, and really a lot of these, these things are being, uh, turned into, uh, increasingly less, uh, less creativity, less say, mm-hmm. uh, and a, a higher degree of output. Um, so, I mean, it's, it, it's curious to me that, that, that this is happening at all, <laughs> you know, that, that, you know, you, how could you have an agent system for, let's say factory workers, right? Yes. Um, that shift is really apparent to me. Like if you were an independent writer versus, I don't know, employed at a, a magazine, you know, mm-hmm. I, I imagine. Oh yeah, no, 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 it, it, you wouldn't. But the thing is, is it's um, it, what agents were back in the day, a million years ago from what, what they, when they described themselves, you know what I mean? So I don't have firsthand knowledge was basically an advocate for an author, right? You don't have connections you don't know anything about this business because there is no internet. You contacted me via first class mail with a letter. You know what I'm saying? That you spent a ton of money on to print. Uh, I'm, I, I think I like your stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to walk it around around here, you know, and there's been plenty of sleaze around with that, but they had a valuable thing. You know, they were a, a paid middleman between the talent and, you know, the capitalist, basically, you know, the guy that's actually going to uh, buy your intellectual property from you and exploit it. And nowadays, all they are are just basically a filter system. They've kind of been put in place over there. And what they really do, if you look at it, is there a functional, like almost a perverted inversion of union representation? They are the collective, the collection of labor, you know what I'm saying? Um, while also being like an exploitative force uh, against it. And instead of like an uplifting force, because if I did go get a yeah. job at a magazine these days, because a lot of the ones that are still alive are unionizing. Hell yes. Um, they are, you know, I would have, I would talk to a union rep or something like that. Like if I was going to go work at a factory in this one place, you know, like, Hey, 
especially if you have good union laws, you have to be part of the thing. And I'm going to talk to the union rep. He's going to check out my stuff. Hey, we do have a position here. This is, you know, this is what dues are. These are the kind of hours you can get. And you're like, hell yeah, I'm a worker. You're looking out for workers. This will work. And in, yeah. in, in the other direction, these agents and stuff, they're just the fucking bad news bears every time, you know, just like, hey, uh, we're you're going to get fucked and you should be thankful about it. And if you complain, you don't even get to get fucked anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's all it's all speculative for them because, it, you know, if they find you a good job for good pay, you're going to use them again. Right. Uh, but it, it really does narrow the conversation around it down to your ability to negotiate and therefore you know, as a result, you, you start to view all of this through the lens of, of meritocracy, you know, that some mm-hmm. people are, are more skilled and that's why they get work as opposed to other people who have less skill. Uh, and what's what's interesting is that, like, there's there's some degree of truth in the fact that, like, everybody has to work hard to get ahead. And there are some people who, you know, have been doing this for longer or who had access earlier who get those skills faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it it is interesting to me that the conversation is always, oh, well, if you were just good enough, you'll be able to, to get at that next level, right? It's the carrot that they dangle in front of you and they, yeah. they kind of use it as a tool to blame you for why you're struggling. You well, it's know? The, yeah, it's the illusion of agency. If, if yeah. you could do something, you could change something about this system that is literally designed to not let you win. <laughs> well, I mean, no. then... All of the horror stories that you hear about Hollywood are also true in games, and often they're owned by the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's unsurprising to me that when you hear about you know some new college or you know if not a college a, a uh, technical school of some kind for art you know abusing students you know or, or the experience that students have in the in the big colleges like the uh, they're, they're the students going on strike the uh, the TAs the unpaid literally unpaid workers. Who yeah. couldn't afford to live. And I think that was that at UCLA Berkeley. I can't remember. Uh, you know, it, it, I'm sure it's happened a lot of different places. Uh, yeah. sure Berkeley is one of them. Um, I think that there was one in Ohio recently. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think that a lot of what, what's interesting to me is that all the problems that you can describe to Hollywood, including sex abuse, are, are true. Uh, in the game industry, you get these these kind of young students uh, willing to do, you know, increasingly insane shit mm-hmm. to have a to have a chance to make maybe forty k a year, yeah, and not in a place where you're wanting to live off forty k, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you and get forty k where all, I live in Louisville, you might be okay, but well, well, yeah, and it, it's all in the service of you know the idea that you're paying your dues, you know, that mm-hmm. you're that this is what you you're gonna do before you get this, and it's never it doesn't work like that. No, uh, but there are people who who especially have been uh, really integrating themselves into the college system and into the studio honor system. They're often the same people who know people who opened up these kind of double A studios. Um, and there's there's definitely a pipeline there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a pain in the ass. And it's it's all about the um, it's this thing that started happening in the 90s where people started talking about like uh I don't know if, if you remember this, but I remember when I was a kid, it used to be Japanese workers are the best workers. Japanese workers are the best workers because of like this, this like idea that like the country of Japan specifically, the way that they worked was the most productive in the best way, you know, skip 
skip your overtime and do this stuff. And like, I was just like, that sounds miserable. Like I already don't see my dad. My dad works seven days a week for the first 12 years of my life. I mean, literally seven days a week as a cook. And, um, that, that shit sucked. And I was like, I don't know why anyone would want to do that, but that steadily became the way of things here. And it's like two part. It's one getting free labor from kids, you know, and newbies and like, Hey, you're going to cut your teeth. You're not going to make as much money. You better stay overworked. And two letting or not just letting, but really forcing the older people in the industry to stay in it forever by having no safety net for not having a job before, you know, 35, 55 years of your life working are gone. So, you know, you have yeah. people working sick. They're, they're 65 in the industry. Like, dude, just retire. <laughs> get someone else, give someone else a chance. That's really what the, the news industry was ridiculous with it. Oh. Uh, people in their, their 60s, 70s working. And it's like, you know, if you want to stay active, I'm not being ageist, but like we need new people to have occupations and you guys are forcing guys that are have been in this industry for 40 years to work more than 40 hours a week on these jobs. We could all be paid, you know, the same amount for 25 hours, have more people doing more effective work and get more content out. But like that won't suit the ultimate purpose of just like making sure that nobody can try to pick what size of the pie they get, except for the two or three people at the top. In, oh, in my yeah. opinion. Oh, yeah. Especially, you know, like, you know, people used to get a cut. If you were working in the film industry, especially, you would get a cut of all of the revenue. Usually it was pretty small, but it was enough to keep you going. I mean, a lot of the the bigger artists that got famous in that time, like Sid Mead, Mm -hmm. uh, part of the reason that they were able to do that is that they were being paid that cut. Uh, That has been completely removed. Right. Mm -hmm. It's you don't get that anymore. Uh, and part of that is that there's no union. I mean, SAG sometimes gets that because SAG is a well-organized union and has been around for a while. And yeah, I mean, all of these unions have their own issues, but like we need them. We, yeah. That's the start of the fight. I would uh, rather have a union with an issue than no union and live in yeah. a right to work state. Cause I, I've, I've been right to work fired. I had a boss that didn't like me and he just let, he just made up one of the reasons that you can make up to fire me. And I got shit canned that day. I was like, can you show yeah. me what I, I, you said I did this thing. Can you show me the evidence? They're like, we don't have to, like, you just have to go. And I was like, what in the fuck are you talking out on my ass? And, and the logic for that is insane to me too, because then you have, you, you the, really what the bosses are saying is if you're allowed to quit at any time, then I should be allowed to fire you at any time, which is like, what, what did they think was going to happen? That they were yeah. going to force you to work forever, First which is off, honestly what they're already doing. Right. Yeah. I don't have the right to quit at any time. I die if I don't work. I lose my house. You know, I'm an American. Even if I made $120,000 a year, as insane as it sounds, I would still be at any given time a sneeze away from pure destitution. One, One cancer diagnosis of the wrong kind, a car crash, any mistake you could think of. Uh, say the wrong thing to the wrong person and get into a lawsuit, whatever done. The reserve Sorry. army of labor. It's, it, it's a threat. It's, mm-hmm. it's used to keep you compliant. And, and, yeah. you know, earlier you were talking about, uh, you know, the Japanese workers and, you know, I think what imperialism and, and globalization has done, uh, is it's created a system where we have a pipeline of, of who does what kind of work and ever so conveniently in the West, 
we get the work that's, you know, maybe more creatively fulfilling, quote unquote. Uh, and so it's it's not a surprise that you hear from, you know, Japan or Korea uh, or like India or something where, you know, you send an animation project their way or a game project their way or something. And they're mostly doing production, you know, mm-hmm. under really severe conditions. Yeah. Uh, Tweening for uh, 60, 70 hours a week. Uh, I don't know if you ever read that comic book from that one guy, French dude that had to work in North Korea and he wrote about the conditions over there. They're ridiculous. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that the conditions in, in North Korea are are hard. I, I can't imagine that they're so categorically different from South Korea outside of South Korea has more money. Oh, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, if you're just under an embargo permanently, um, you, you're not going to have a nice day, regardless of our, our, our political relation with the leadership of that country, like making sure that people can't get deodorant. I, I don't know what value that has. <laughs> like, well, uh, I, mean, yeah, it, it, I don't think it's the it's the leadership of North Korea enforcing that. You know, I mm-hmm. I think if, if anything, I, when I look at, at North Korea, you're probably uh, more likely to have social benefits in North Korea than you are in South Korea. Yeah, um, South Korea is wild, Korea's, too. Uh, and yeah, I didn't know about that until. I, uh, from, oh, sorry. sorry. No, yeah. Until Squid Game came out. And I was like, that sounds pretty crazy. I was like, you can't just sell your organs to the mafia people and people will honor that contract and then like no that's super common like what like yeah apparently south korea which is our like glowing uh example of of capitalism in the koreas was like a dictatorship like uh dystopic nightmare and still kind of is except for like you know that's like i think that's what that song gangnam style is about there's like the dance song here but it's really about like how destitute a lot of people are. And then you just spend all your money so that you can uh, do the Gangnam style, like buy overpriced coffee and sunglasses and pretend that you're rich, which is, it's basically just America, you know, in the nineties, I guess they're hit. They're about to hit their two thousands era, which is no good. Oh yeah. I, I mean, a lot of that is just pointing at the contradictions. I mean, honestly, if the U S military wasn't there, there would probably be one Korean government. Now, mm-hmm. or at least a, a you know kind of what what china has you know one country two systems thing it, it really is that south korea is essentially an imperial puppet of the united states yeah uh most of our i mean basically if henry kissinger ever got soil from your country on his shoes you work for us even if you <laughs> think you're quote unquote first world like uh, I have arguments every once in a while with uh, like folks that are from Britain and stuff and they're talking about blah, blah, blah. And I was like, you guys know that you work for us, right? Like, I know you're talking some shit and like you have some nice stuff, but basically like you're an imperial power. You're you, you, you've got, you've got free healthcare cause you stole all the shit. It's not cause you're doing good. You've got, you got all the free shit, France. You are stealing all of the uranium from Nigeria you guys, if you if we're nice to you and Kissinger was there, you probably work for us, whether you know it or not. And you do some yeah. f- gnarly fucked up shit on our behalf. Like, yeah, that's, that's why I've always been frustrated when people point at like Sweden or, or Norway or something and go, oh, it's it's socialist. It's oh, yeah. welfare capitalism, but it ain't that ain't socialism. Yeah. If you, if you think yeah, it's always nice. And then, you know, um, I was in North Dakota where we have made they had major Swedish. I think it's Swedish or Norwegian, but anyway, it's Slumberger, which is spelled Slumberger, and uh, they are a major hydrocarbon extraction uh, thing. And they were doing the fracking up in North Dakota, and they are just as 
depraved and cutthroat as any American oil company. They don't give a shit, you know, uh, sneeze and 5,000 workers are done. But just like, I was literally there when they fired, uh, I think it was 1500 guys in a day. Boom. Done. All those rigs are done. The, the price of the barrel price of oil fell from whatever it was, 55 down to like 42 because we won our extraction war with OPEC that was going on at the time. And boom, next day, done. Bye. Don't eat it. Yeah. <laughs> we still hold that. Yeah. We still hold the mineral rights. We're not going to extract any of this um, and pay the people that are around here for the mineral rights that are on their land. They can't extract anything and try to sell it for a cheaper price. We're going to sit here. And just fuck all y'all. And then maybe we'll be back at some point and grace you with a little bit of money. And none of your none of your natural resource money is going to come back into the state because we're yeah, taking my, Michael Parenti actually spoke about that one. He said, there, you know, there's no such thing as a poor country. Uh, there's just countries oh, yeah. that have been overexploited. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, I, I, I worry for Mexico with the discovery of the uh, the the lithium deposit. I don't know if you heard about that. You know, I, I have, I, I'm not, I'm not worried about, uh, you know, an invasion or anything quite, quite that bad, oh, but no. it is just going to be more capitalist exploitation. You know, it, it always there, I think the imperial powers are more or less unified in, in their goal of attempting to preserve capitalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so an inter-imperial conflict, you know, it, it doesn't sound super likely unless we start looking at, you know, the Russian situation and that's the whole fucking thing. Yeah, it's a can of worms. But yeah, I, yeah. I would say I'm worried about how, I don't know. I was in the military, I was in the Marine Corps. Um I don't know how you would get all of the Mexicans that are like li- literal, you know, guys from Mexico and then I'd say about thirty three percent of any one unit are, are Spanish speaking dudes from literally Mexico or just a little bit south and then into South America. And you'd be like, Hey guys, uh, we need you to go invade Mexico. And they're like, no, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Cause it's all the, you know, it's all the poorest people. And after 20 years in Afghanistan, um, uh, imperialism by force just does not seem, especially imperialism by direct force, you know, don't get into proxy wars and stuff just seems excessive and dumb. I think, to even the most hawkish people, well, not the most hawkish, but most of the, you know, hawkish centrists. I'm just worried it's going to be something dumb, like, you know, sideways, three degrees of separation. Like we're going to yeah. cut off water to this town because, you know, we're just worried that it's poisonous now. And they're like, you know, or, All or right, what we'll happened sell. in El Salvador, you know, turning, turning the, the economic system into crypto, which is <laughs> that's, insane. That's the wildest know? shit I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, like, you know, things like that. I, I think that happening, I, I'm not a mind reader or future, you know, teller, soothsayer or whatever. But, you know, I, I think like whenever we see a lot of these things now, it, it usually just looks like the U.S. sending a bunch of weapons into a place and not particularly caring where they go. You yeah. know, looking at you know, Ukraine and Taiwan and, you know, all these these things now. Shit, um, Kentucky, where I live. I mean, you know, the uh, the lax gun laws in our state make sure that any state that doesn't have lax gun laws around them, you know where you can go to get the gun. You're, you're a degree of separation away, but he can still accomplish that same shitty thing. You know, I yeah. can't get my, I can't get my, uh, my tanks and my HEMARS or whatever the hell to the Sudan, but I can get them, you know, one or two countries away. And then still, you still kind of get to the same point. Yeah. And we, we basically everywhere in the world, there's, there's a U.S. ship somewhere near it. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, there is. That was uh, that was one of the things that um, I never got to do because of stupid ass fucking Iraq war. This is one of the only cool things you could ever do in, in the military is actually do the whole like, I'm going to be on a boat and float to a bunch of friendly ports. But I didn't even get to do that. It was just dumb shit. Just, just so what, what got you out of the military? Being in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, good good I, on you. I was uh, I joined at 17. I'm from like broke. I'm from like broke, broke, you know. Um, not exactly like completely poor, but I, th- there was nothing else for me to do. It was 2005, uh, 2004 is when I joined and I was 17. I uh, did three. Year to join, man. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I went over, I was infantry too. So, you know, I got shot at the, the whole, the whole kit and caboodle. And when I went in, I was like a West side of Cincinnati goofball, like, I don't know about this John Edward guy, John Kerry, whatever the hell, you know. And then by the time I got out, I was like accidentally writing what I didn't realize was like half revolutionary. Right. I was like, I don't understand why there are two classes of of personnel in the military. Why is there an upper class of officer? They don't seem to provide any additional. Like, (laughs) You ever see that speech from I I think it was Mike Preisner? No. Uh, he had a great speech. I think he was also in the military, if I'm remembering his name correctly. But he had a, a great speech about exactly that issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's I think uh, you can find it on YouTube if you just I don't know, look up Mike Preisner. Oh, for sure. And, you know, and it, it, it's it's I, I'll probably agree with it. it. It's a thing that you notice because if you ever go into a military installation or um, yeah, basically and you go to the company office or the office uh, of wherever the, the commanding officer is, you actually see the entirety of the command chain on uh, one of the walls. They, they have to do that. And you put a picture of each senior enlisted person and each senior officer and literally every duty station I ever had, every senior enlisted person was a, a person of color, maybe bar one or two, but every single fucking officer was a white guy every yeah. single time all the way up white dude i i imagine that when you're when you're inside of that structure you realize very quickly that you're you're not fighting for freedom or any of the things they tell you about you're fighting for you know walt disney or whoever it is today yeah who's gonna benefit from this conflict and like really not even just like the known entities you start finding out about shit like kbr and stuff and like you know blackwater and all these types of of fucking guys and these like these companies that have they they just exist in those nondescript empty buildings and like or not empty but like blank buildings in downtown new york and you're like i wonder who works there and it's like oh no that's you know JFJM Kaiser Corps, they produce 120% of the ascetic acid that exists they, in the they world. They export 90% of the Nazis around the world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for yeah, real. That's, that's our, our structure. That sounds about right. Oh, man. You, you know, like, uh, you know, you're in a, a wonderful part of the, the war when you start seeing a bunch of people wearing aviator glasses and polo shirts with freaking uh, strike plates on. You're like, all right, OK, is this is this what we've got? You, you remember reading about that stuff in the, the Iraq war where, where people were trying to bounty hunt Osama bin Laden with katanas and shit getting picked up and, and like trying to get to the Middle East with just, you know, whatever it is that they got. I'm not surprised. Um, I, I didn't hear about that specifically. 
that was I, the 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 wild west time was basically like right before i got there uh well actually not right before a little bit a little bit before before so like the the, yeah, the invasion was in 2003 and that was pretty straightforward a land invasion and then you had like this little mix-up time and then the insurgency started and then right around then was when shit was crazy because like everybody was going to Iraq to fight, um, even, you know, on the other side, there was like students, uh, Islamic jurisprudence students from fucking France and shit were just going to Iraq with passports that had, you know, like for, to, for like to fight in the jihad against like, you know, these, these, these imperialist invaders, like, oh, I, I guess, hell yeah, dude. Um, Okay. And, you know, things like that are happening, you know, in the Ukraine and Russian conflict and all that sort of shit. But yeah, yeah. Uh, once, once you get over there and you see once you see that war isn't run like in a cool way, like in, a, in the movies way and like a history book way where you're like, oh, it's these big speeches and shit and like fucking really cool big explosions and yeah no in every day that you do anything it's just basically like a really long day at a walmart like you're like oh this is this was fucking stupid only a mcdonald's <laughs> somewhere new that day i've had mcdonald's you know, i've had mcdonald's overseas <laughs> yeah. Camp you know, I, I think one of the things one of the things i actually want to this is a great transition back to games which Sorry, is you know, the military and the entertainment industry in both games and film are linked you know yes. in film it's a little bit more apparent because you know if you're making a war movie and you want access to you know modern military equipment the military is going to require you to depict them in a good light you are you cannot be critical of them because you will not get the equipment if you're not um true and uh you know so you're going to be using if you can even get access to it you know very old equipment to try mm-hmm. to shoot your modern war film in uh but, you know, uh, another example of this is in the Call of Duty series. I mean, now we're kind of washing our own war crimes through the lens of blaming it on other countries. And then in one of the newer Call of Duties, uh, one of the war crimes that we're responsible for, uh, we ended up blaming on Russia. And the game Russia did it, not us. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was uh, the Highway of Death, I think it was called. Oh, um, uh, in, 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 um, in the Persian Gulf War? First, first Iraq War? Uh, you know, I, I I can't recall which. I, I don't know if it was the Persian Gulf War or if it was the one after, but it's it's one of our many war crimes. Yeah, that but, was uh, uh, that was a uh, that was there was that was definitely the one. I can't, I can't remember if that happened again. I don't think it did in the um, in the new one because it happened in the first time. And so they didn't do it. But, yeah, basically there was a military movement on a highway and then also um, civilian movement on the same highway, not necessarily in the same space, but they just they just turned off the highway, so to say. And uh, yeah, very bad. Not not remotely something that has anything to do with Russia. Yeah, <laughs> and, and somehow you know, so, somehow Call of Duty has managed to make this a, a Russian war crime. You know and. It's not a surprise to me that the people who are in charge at Blizzard have ties to Obama era and Trump era military officials. You know, mm-hmm. Some of them are people who worked in the military at that time in high ranks. Um, and it's also not a surprise that they're working with the Pinkertons today. I fucking hate Pinkertons. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> I think I think a lot of my uh, my uh, uh, fucking 
fans got introduced to Pinkertons just in this season. Cause I, 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 I've got some like responses like who, who, who is that? Is that like something you made up for the, uh, for the, for the podcast? I like, it's rarely, no, I didn't. I, I normally, uh, a lot of my, um, I have like different like fake companies and stuff and uh, they're, they're responsible for different aspects of capitalist infrastructure, security, transportation and shit. And um, normally I go with Walther, but for this one, because it is in the early 1900s, I picked Pinkerton's like literally the Pinkerton detective agency headed up by one Clinton. (laughs) And man, the first time I ever read about them, I was like gobsmacked. I, I didn't think it was like possible. You know what I mean? Because you have all these, uh, conversations about America and stuff and like what happens here and the kind of people that we are. And we're not going to get pushed around. You ever seen a man on a, with a horse and a rifle, I could fight off a town of bad guys. But then like I started reading about, you know, the fucking Pinkertons because they talked about him in Deadwood, the show Deadwood of all time. And then I just, I was just like enamored. Like what in the absolute fuck? There was just, you could just hire a PMC inside American American lines and just have them slaughter people. Like, yeah. And you can still do it. You can yes. still do it. You know? And I, I think that's, that's the, the wild thing is that we, we, it's easy to look at the past and go like, Oh, that's just something bad that happened back then. But we're, you know, we're better now. You know, yes. or something. And it's no. like, Oh no, we're, we're really not. Uh, and I, I, I've been looking at like, um, you know, uh, when strikes like first happened, you know, in America and, you know, the union movement was really picking up in the late 1800s, you know, you have Pinkertons and cops Gatling gunning down people who are just out there with signs, you know, or camping out out front of the place. And I'm, can you Uh, imagine massacre in, in Colorado, uh, 14 women and children dead, 150 people injured, according to the company statement. Um, just one person dead, unfortunately, a uh, Pinkerton volunteer who was, yeah. who was ruthlessly executed by union uh, rabble rousers, communists, well, like, communists. I, well, I, I think part of this is that like in school, right? The, yes. When you learn about history, it's always through that lens of the, the great man theory. Mm-hmm. And so you hear about these horrifying things that people have always done that you know, there's this knock at the door that comes for some new group of people today. Uh and I think what what happens is that, you know, we start believing, oh, we're different. We learned. Surely we learned. And, and can you even imagine being the kind of person who would shoot at a group of unarmed people? No. You know, I, I can't even imagine that. And yet it still happens globally and, and funded by us. Yeah. And I mean, you don't even have to look as far as the Pinkertons. You can go straight to literal state sponsored um you know in actors your, your local just police department. Local department i live in louisville kentucky uh i went to the brianna taylor protests it's a, a whole thing the guy uh the one guy that actually managed to go to prison for 10 seconds over it um he is out and employed three counties over already so yep you know that's that's the entirety of it and you know it's like I, I get some flack for these, these things. Um, and I know you're not necessarily familiar with the, the fiction area. And I guess this is me just kind of talking to my, 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 my listeners. Um, I, I, it's been like this the whole time, guys. I, I don't know what to tell you every, every yeah. six months I get a, you know, I'm sick of the politics and I'm like, I wrote a story 
called Quarterly Review that is about a guy who gets sick at work and he gets so sick that he contracts an insane virus and starts puking his his coworkers to death, basically, with, with acid. And like, you know, what I, 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 I hate to say this because I know those those viewers are definitely not going to like what I'm about to say. Well, they're also uh, gone. <laughs> Yeah, everything is political and there's really no way to get away from that. I mean, if you don't talk about this stuff and you make it just kind of mass appeal, I mean, that is a political statement, you know, to do that. Uh, Uh, I I don't know, like whenever you say and I I try to if I can actually have a conversation with somebody, because usually it's just like I'm leaving and then they're, they're gone. No one's ever no one has literally ever sent me a message and been like, Tyler, your politics are too intense. Could you tone them down for me? No one, no one ever reaches out. It's like always, you know, through a, you know, one of those comment systems that does not have a reply function or like, you know, they're leaving, they can leave a, an anonymous note. It's like, you can talk to me about it. If you don't agree, I, I, I will defend anything I say. And, and the, 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 where the places that I say it in, like, I really do believe in this shit and it, it, it informs my art. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had people I even knew, you know, reach out to me about my politics before and have conversations with me. And sometimes that ended well. and Sometimes it didn't. True. Uh, Because, I mean, when you become a socialist at some point, almost everybody goes through through this arc of like, oh, communism was good. But I guess it just sucks that people are too dumb to figure it out. And then you start thinking, hey, well, what about Cuba? (laughs) You know, what's China up to today? What happened to the USSR? Really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And once and, uh, you start digging into that, people get real uh, antsy about whatever it is that you got to say. And it, it's also, you know, uh, for communism and socialism, it's hold, uh, held up to a much higher standard than capitalism is. You know, capitalism can make every mistake. It, it is it is the darling daughter of of, of universal uh, or, or worldwide economic discourse. If, if capitalism accidentally not trying to, you know, starves 18 million people to death over 20 years throughout, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. That is a a flaw. All right. But you know, anything, the minus minor inconvenience, every, every horrible nightmarish thing that has ever happened relative to communism is an intentional feature of it. Like that is just specifically what we just do this to starve people. It's literally just, just to do the bread lines. It's the point. It's the point of it is to keep you afraid. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you know, I I actually really love, there's this Thomas Sankara uh, quote where he was saying something along the lines of like, you know, we don't want your aid, you know, stop sending us food and water aid start sending us tractors if you really cared you would send us tractors and not food so yeah. that we could make our own fucking food but no that's that's you're not gonna you're gonna try to send them the means of production <laughs> you know what you just asked for <laughs> you know I, ironically we kind of did that with china i mean china very very uh smartly uh put itself into a position where it was exploited by the u.s for its labor and now it doesn't really need us anymore. It has no. the factory. Like they're they're fine without us. True. Yes. And um, I, I say more power to them. I, I I don't like the concept. And we're getting into the weeds now. Sorry, listeners. Of of uh, uh, political and economic hegemons in the world, regardless of whether or not I am the one. Because it's one of those things where people kept saying, you know, China's going to be controlled. China's getting more power. China's getting more powerful. And I'm like, I don't fucking care. I, I, I don't have any power in America. I don't know how things could get worse or better for me 
whoever the fucking hegemon is, I, yeah. I the the worst that could possibly happen is that they're going to try to make me learn Chinese. I'm too fucking stupid for it. I won't do it anyway. I can't yeah. memorize thirty thousand characters. I just, no, I'm, I'm I'm completely in line with you. Whatever China's up to, I really don't care. It's not my problem. Yeah, <laughs> my, my my problem is my boss or you know my job yeah. prospects. Or the fact that I I have student loans that the Republicans are trying to make me back pay, you know, three years worth of, uh, uh the insurance. Yeah. Well, well are they you know, did, did you hear about this the other day, how the Republicans yeah. were, were, they're trying to, to charge you for the, the student loan pause. They passed that. They passed that in the house. So it's, yeah. uh, they're going to deny his, they're trying to deny Biden's ability to continuously forgive the loans. And then the loans area that's already been forgiven, they want to charge you interest on it that you haven't paid, which actually would make you pay more money overall than if you would have just paid it straightforward, which is just penalizing a massive, massive section of the, of the population. It, yeah. I, they released but, but a thing. My, oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's all good. My, my whole point there being that like it, it, whatever Cuba's up to or China's up, like it just, it's not, I don't control them. They're up to their own shit. They have their own problems to deal with. Yeah. I got these problems over here. <laughs> I, I say the same thing too. I have a lot of respect for other people's like miseries. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, fucking whatever, you know, worldwide proletariat. Fuck. Yeah. Oh, yeah but like, I, I can't care that much about even like Georgia. Like I respect that you guys got problems over here, but I am in fucking Louisville, Kentucky. All right. I, I, I can walk out my door into every problem that you're talking about right there. And I really want to try to fix shit locally. And I think people's inability to um, process like that and, and these these constant like super oversized narratives like why do you not care about this thing? And it's like I, I just I can't I don't have enough space in my heart for the whole world. Like I have well, problems I need did. to address. E- so, even if you did, my, my grand question is what can you possibly control? Yes. Right. Because it's not that I don't have criticisms of China or what have you. Right. It's that nothing I say or do will ever change anything happening in China. And frankly, it's it's outside of my my sphere of control, even if I did care. Right. When the Ukraine war started, I can't tell you how many people were furious that I wasn't more angry at Russia. And, you know, fuck Putin, whatever. Right. Right. But like. He's not, he's not a communist. Right? No, no problem. Uh, like solidarity, everybody's struggling. It's shit. Right. But I don't control what Russia does. I control no. what my country does. Mm-hmm. Right. So when people, when that conflict started and I was very vocal in the anti-war movement in, in saying, Hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't be making this problem worse. Maybe we shouldn't be escalating it. And to this day, I maintain, we shouldn't be sending weapons there. Not because I don't empathize. Right. But because it's not fixing the problem. I don't mm. control what Russia does, but I do have at least some iota of of, of control over my own government, right? True. It's and I, speaking, I think it's the same thing all the way down. I mean, that's at such a high level that, like, you don't you don't control that. Maybe your representative does. Fuck if I know. No, right? my representatives but, are Thomas Massey and fucking Mitch McConnell. <laughs> well, well, yeah, right. And fuck, fuck those guys. Right. Yeah, but I got, I got nothing. I literally have people. nothing. Yeah, the the most sphere of control that I, I think we all have outside of our immediate social groups, right, is your workplace, right? 
Mm-hmm. So the struggle really does start there. I mean, that's what you control, whether or not you have the ability to withhold your labor. True. Um, and I think literally on that note, good time to uh, switch to a thing that does affect both of us in the workplace. And that is generative AI, which is yeah. like possibly the most irritating thing I think that has popped up in in years that is like it 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 haunts me at night how fucking mad i get about it it it's basically the new nft you know um it's tech bros we're gonna disrupt shit we're gonna disrupt shit and then when you look deeper into it 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 barely solves any it doesn't solve any of the problems that they want to address with it it doesn't do any of the things that they say they do and it's as always somehow based upon infringement of other people's ip and just stealing labor oh yeah it's it's the fantasy of never-ending capital embodied uh to try to sell it to a ceo it's the newest buzzword and the the unfortunate the unfortunate reality of ai specifically is that like when they talk about disrupting you know the system or whatever uh they don't mean capitalism they mean their own little petite bourgeois fantasy yes um and it, it, the the sad re- I don't think it's going to cost I it, I don't know if it's going to take jobs away but what it it's more likely to do is limit job growth uh it it'll change I mean much like when you're at a factory and a new machine gets brought in uh you you need less workers overall and now you just need somebody who can operate the machine mm-hmm. uh you know and so I I'm looking at that and I'm going like well you know if you ever in fact one of the most common things I hear from people in in leadership structures at companies when they talk about AI is they they always try to backpedal away from like, oh, well, we're not going to make you paint over it, which is just a lie. That's coming down yeah. the line at some point, right? More often than not, what I hear is, oh, it's a tool for art direction so that the CEO and who's who might as well be fucking God under our yeah. system because he's the dude with the money, mm-hmm. right? He, he now can he doesn't have to be an artist. He can have his bullshit ideas that make no sense and aren't going anywhere. But don't worry, the machine will make it good enough for him to have more say over what you get to do. Yes. Uh, the, the, the thought if you've if you've never worked with uh, uh, an uncreative creative person uh, for my my listeners out there, there is there are fewer, more niche, exquisite miseries than having to deal with an uncreative person. It, it really boils down to this one scene in the movie uh, Amadeus. I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but it's about Amadeus Mozart and he presents a song to the king and a guy tries to poo poo it. And uh, they, when the, the guy, the king repeats this guy's criticism, it's just, I, I don't know about this newest piece. It, it has, it has too many notes. What, what, what do you mean? What, which notes? It's just too many notes. <laughs> it walks away. And that's, that's what it is. That, that is what it is like dealing with them. Not my they, tempo. Yeah, not my fucking, t- not my fucking tempo. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and yeah, I, I think that's, that's, you know, the, the terrifying thing about all this is that once you become acutely aware of, of this being the case, and it certainly was beforehand, right? I mean, they're, these are the people who get to decide what gets to be made or not. And it's not because they're better or that their ideas are better or that they're smarter or harder working. It it really does boil down to they are the people with the money. And yeah. when you start to scratch that itch a little bit and you look under the surface of it and you go, hey, how did they get that money? 
It's I primitive accumulation. It's it's always primitive accumulation. You know, they 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 got there first, and if they weren't there first, they just you know bought everything else out. It's uh, it, it, you always get to a point where the the best way forward is not to make a better product. And if you don't believe me on this, if you're out there listening, just think of Apple. Apple made a few really great products. Right. That were like, hey, you know, they weren't necessarily revolutionary if you know a lot about tech. But what they did was streamline people's ability to have access to technologies that were generally not able to be put in hand. And they cornered the market. They advertised the shit out of it. And then they never improved on it once. They they settled instead for doing cheap shit, like making, uh, doing, doing junk, uh, accessories, making sure that you couldn't step away from that platform. Once that platform got bigger, uh, suing other companies and buying up other smaller companies, the, the way that Facebook and, and, and Snapchat and all of them do so that they don't have any bigger competitors. And so what you have is just like, you know, the, the social media landscape is a thing that you guys might understand where you have like Instagram, but, but Instagram's not Instagram anymore. It's, it's like sort of like Snapchat, but also Facebook owns it. Facebook is nothing like Facebook used to be, but also it has Snapchat and Instagram for some reason. TikTok oh, is Snapchat. You can also prove this by just going down to your local store, right? Go, yeah. go down to a Walmart and you're going to figure out very quickly that we're making dog shit products so that you have to buy more of it. I mean, our, our entire economic system is based on throwing shit into the ocean Mm -hmm. uh, because they want you to burn through it so that you pay for another, if they made a quality product, I mean, you can look at appliances in your house, right? If you have a a dishwasher or a a washing machine of some kind, you know, why is it that washing machines from like the sixties still run today and are great and desirable, but like the washing machines made today break in a year or two. Yeah. Uh, for exactly that reason, right? And and I think it's true. On, I mean, before we started the podcast, you were talking about your time as a as a journalist and mm-hmm. about Yahoo. Right? Oh God, yeah. And right there, I mean, Yahoo doesn't need a good article; it just needs to copy and paste somebody else's shit, and make it worse, so that it's maybe legally outside of being sued. Yeah, which is uh, you know, th- th- that's the thing is um, when when people are talking about like AI is going to change journalism, I, I don't understand how. I, I like is the AI going to call the sources is the AI going to walk out to random people's houses and ask them questions like, um, are you going to attach the AI bot to a phone center? So it's just going to be randomly calling representatives. Are they going to, is it going to know when that's they're lying to them? Is it going to be able to double check? Like it's the thing that people don't get when they look in at an industry that they don't understand. And, and you see it in other stuff too. You know, people are like, I don't understand why this, these, these construction guys are all standing around looking in a hole. And it's like, well, have you ever worked construction? Shut the fuck up and leave them alone. They're, they're doing whatever the fuck they do. Like it's their job. And with, with journalism, what they're trying to say is what AI is going to do is it's going to start ripping off your stories. They're going to go Jack slate articles and, and, mix them up with a Fox news article or a CNN article on the same thing. And you know, they're already doing it. Oh, I fucking guarantee it. Um, I think some people have already been like sort of caught. Um, I don't have a specific example, but I do know I saw a bunch of guys being like, this looks like AI and the, the article got brought down. It wasn't from a particularly big source. You know, it was one of those stupid things like Babylon B type deal. But uh, it was the same thing where you're like, wow, this does have that vibe because you can kind of feel it like AI 
AI created stuff does have a plasticky sheen to it. And people keep talking about how it's going to get better and better and better and better. But like, I, I, I just, the best it can get the best an artificial intelligence could get would to just be intelligent. And so even at that point, it's still not me. It can't make up what I make. It can't yes. draw what you draw. So at well, that point, yeah, like, you know, what we're not, what we're rewarding is not the creativity or even the talent or, or the intuition, but mere raw production, relentless yes. production. Earlier, we were talking about the proletarianization of artists. I mean, writers yes. already went through this, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think what, what we're looking at there, where it is just raw production, when you're an artist now, you're a wrist until that wrist gives out. Yeah. Uh, the same thing, the, the, it's true for factory workers. It's true for every job, right? And for a long time, art was something that people uh, adopted as this mentality of like, well, I shouldn't have to work. At, look, I'm really good at drawing, right? And when it's not art, when art, uh, you know, becomes fully proletarianized at some point, uh, it'll be engineering. And then that'll be, you know, it'll have some new shit, you know. But but I think what's, what's interesting about what you're saying there is that it actually highlights exactly the problem, right? They don't need a bespoke thing. That, that That's not even what they want. And the irony is, is that this bespoke thing would be more likely to generate the kind of super profits they're, they're hunting for. Mm-hmm. But... Um, they, they're not looking for that. They're looking for the Lion King 55. Yes. And uh, they don't really care about what you have to say or any, any, it, all they want is the, in their fantasy world, which really shows up. And if you look at how they talk about, you know, the metaverse or some bullshit like that, it, it's the fantasy that they don't need us anymore. Mm-hmm. That they're going to have an idea and it's going to get produced and they won't have to pay anybody for it. They can just profit endlessly and have ideas. They're the only people that get to have ideas. Yeah. You know, and their ideas are shit, uh, which is why they want to be the only ones at the table, which is really well, what it's well, about. Yeah, they, they, when, when something fails, right. When, when a new Disney movie fails or a game fails, it's not, Oh, well the CEO fucked up or the, the idea guy who has all the money fucked up or the board of directors. The first thing they do is they lay off their entire creative team and mm-hmm. the QA team. And yeah. then they go see people fucking suck. That's why it failed, <laughs> you know, but like it was the problem with the product. Yeah, <laughs> it was a problem with how and why it got made. And, you know, when we talk about articles, when we talk about, um, you know, the raw production capability and the plastic sheen that you were talking about, I know exactly what you mean, mm-hmm. because what's, what's interesting is that we have a philosophical problem with how and why art is made and what use it has. Yeah, right. The purpose of art has changed. Uh, and we've hit this point now, I think, and especially when I look at the entertainment industry, and there's some amount of truth in this in the in the kind of fine art world. You know, there's a debate about, you know, the, the there's a difference between taping a banana to a wall and the, the urinal. Right. That's yeah. fine. Those two things have different meanings. They had different uses. Right. So it's, it's there. But in the entertainment sphere, it has increasingly become about the literal depiction of the thing. Yes. Um, and when it's not the literal depiction, there's kind of these stratified uh, styles or tropes uh, that are that are targeted. You know, when you think of a Pixar movie, 
that has a you know every woman in a Pixar movie ends up looking the same if they if they're if they're a main character yeah you know you think gigantic dump truck back end tiny little skinny yeah. top big hair and yeah so so what happens is that we're you're really just making a thing that's designed to become a piece of plastic that gets thrown into the ocean mm-hmm. uh, yeah and yeah. Um, and so plastic sheen is just that's a philosophical problem. I, I agree 100 percent. And, you know, the, the the fidelity things, I think we're about the same age. I was born in 87. So you, you probably survived the fidelity wars uh, through the I 90s. I was born in 91. I don't know oh. if that makes a difference. No, 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 no. You'll, you'll know basically exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, you, you're you're one iteration, possibly two. Yeah, but it's 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 the same thing. So, you know, we go from. We have the the death of video games with the Atari in the eighties, which is before my time, and then we have the Nintendo comes back and it's good, and so that's great. And then we have the Super Nintendo, and then the Sega shows up, and it's like, hey, which is better, and why would it be better? And is it the content or is it the console? And so it created the beginning of that gigantic, insane divestment that went wild all through the two thousands, where you had. Is it games? And Nintendo said, it's games. And fuck controller ergonomics, fuck graphics. It's games, games, games. And that gave them incredible staying power. But PlayStation and later Xbox, and to a degree Dreamcast, even though it fell off, they went fidelity. And so it was realism, 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 realism. And then it really took off in the mid-2000s. I don't know why, technically. But when the Xbox 360 came out, it really became like the true true console wars you know uh xbox 360 playstation 3 um and then it was like yeah every year it was like how many fucking polygons you know how many fucking polygons i have on this dude's piece of hair right here 40 million polygons and bump mapping i knew i learned what bump mapping was because it was all they were talking about like egm if you remember People remember Electric Gaming Monthly. It was a magazine and paper about video games. It was great. And, you know, that all went up and then kind of stopped a little bit because people were getting sick of it. And it hit like a weird thing. And then we had a bunch with the first like steam powered, basically internet powered Ichio. Shout out Ichio. Um low res revolution and stuff like, you know, that eventually became like hollow Knight came out. You have uh, like maple, maple story. I can't remember, but maple story is a little bit older. I mean, I don't know what you're there's hollow Knight, but there's, there's a lot of stuff like that. You know, it's kind of yes. taking inspiration from the higher fidelity stuff and making it, you know, uh, yeah, more I, attainable, I guess. I, I um, didn't have the, uh, I didn't have the, the, the computer game, but like even like Minecraft and shit, you know, lower, lower fidelity gameplay focused stuff just kind of like bop came because it was just, it was gimmick games for the longest time. It's just like cover shooter, cover shooter, cover shooter, cover shooter, cover shooter, cover shooter. And then you had like the modern warfares and then it was like modern warfare, battlefield, modern warfare, battlefield. And like, that was the only thing other than sports games. And sorry. then it was like 90 kinds of mass effect, <laughs> you know? And yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, that, so I, I do know what you're saying now, and I, I actually think that in the jump from 2D to 3D at first in, in the 90s, uh, we we definitely lost something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from the jump from early 3D to increasingly higher fidelity, we've lost another thing. Yes. Um, 
And I, I think it's it, it really is just a philosophical issue because there there are times where I think it works. In fact, I I actually think the Resident Evil Four remake is a is a great example of this, mm-hmm. right? Where the remake of Resident Evil Four to me, you know, almost makes sense. You know, it part of the point was was the literal depiction, or I don't know if it required it or needed it. I mean, if you ever go back and you play, you know, the old Resident Evil Four, it has the stink of of Afghanistan on it. It has the you know the the one of the main bad guys it was vaguely Osama bin Ladeni, uh, and then the new one they've kind of oh my I hat. never yes the original Salazar is very he is very beardy now that you mention yeah. it he does not talk either unlike in well, the new in, game in the new one I, I'm not sure if you've noticed this but in the remake he's almost Russian Orthodox looking yes he is considered they're all a lot different um, actually well I, I, except I for Krauser there's a reason for that right mm-hmm. You know, when I when I look at like, I mean, and I don't want to knock it too hard. We got other shit. But like when I look at that, you know, that's that's one game that I think probably benefited from that. But the irony is that I think if you go back and you tried to remake, you know, a bunch of things from the PlayStation one era, I don't know if it would hold up. And I, and honestly, we're also make, remaking a bunch of things that frankly don't need it. I mean, the level of fidelity was fine and it worked. And in my opinion, there's also a lot of room for a lot of magic at the lower fidelity, which is, I have a lot of respect for the solo devs and the, the smaller indie teams that are working on, especially lo-fi horror. Literally, literally to that, uh, the remakes of silent Hill one. No, Uh, no silent Hill one. Perfect. Broken. You know, I don't even know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't even know perfect. Right. But like the thing is, is that you would lose something and, and like, I'm pretty sure you could make a good game and at a higher fidelity with it, but would you be missing? Like, what would you be missing from that? You know, what has changed? And I, I, and and I think it's true for resident evil as well. You know, there's something about the jank of it. Yeah. We we were willing to look the other way. And then when you bring it into a higher fidelity, you have, you know, Chris Redfield punching a boulder into a volcano and everybody goes, (laughs) what the fuck? Uh, at the time at the time it was so stupid it made me mad but looking back it's it's a fond memory of the stupidest shit i've ever done in a game yeah <laughs> i think you know i i think that that's why i i have such an interest in in uh the indie scene right now and i i want to i want to make a, a stark differentiation between the indie scene that i'm talking about and what people sometimes often refer to as indie which is just like um, double a Double A or even sometimes, you know, just venture capital in general, uh, mm-hmm. get involved. And that's not necessarily bad. There's a lot of good games out there that aren't made by the biggest companies. Right. Yeah. But like, you know, you, you can look at Annapurna and they have their own issues. Right. They have issues with labor exploitation and with the ideas, guys and all that shit. And honestly, when you when the second you get venture capital into it, it just becomes a matter of time before the squeeze happens. Mm-hmm. Um, the second you get some product that gets released regardless of its quality they will squeeze the ever-loving shit out of anybody who's left at that company yeah um which is often why these companies go under immediately after they or, or they just stop releasing things because you know you've hit your natural conclusion point and uh you know capitalism can't continue forever <laughs> no yeah I, when, I, once you've exploited the resource which is the creativity of these individuals to a to a, a sufficient stopping point you know, I've hit the peak. I've made the good game. I've made the sales. Now I can yeah. sell all the computers, stop paying these assholes. And then I'm still making the sales. I still have the IP. 
they can get yeah. residuals and shit. But why risk more creativity? It, which is weird because it's like, yeah. what? Like, imagine a farmer saying, "Well, there's all the corn." <laughs> like, well, fuck, it's essentially fuck this the, 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 it, well, it's essentially the R and D wing of, of the industry where where they're looking for other things that they can stratify because everything is very stale, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if you had a new style that just lands in a specific way. They're really hunting for something like that. The next Pixar, right? It's yeah. something they can stratify because if they can, if they, if after your team leaves and they buy out your company, if they can produce things that are, that look and feel identically to that, you know, they have that product forever. I mean, that really is their mentality is, is can they lock down the product? Mm-hmm. Um, it would be like buying a, a restaurant and, and changing out the chefs and trying to make sure that the food tasted exactly the same. Yeah. Like at a McDonald's. Um, and there's certainly room for for something like that in in a socialist structure. There's certainly room for for making you know quality and cheap, right? Yeah. But I, efficiency I, efficiency is not a capitalist. Uh, what do you call that? It's not the sole purview of, of, of capitalism. Well, I I think that this is why there there there's such an interest for me in in this scene because I actually think that there's a a political struggle happening across you know every sector of society right now. But I think these games also have their own little political and, and philosophical struggle happening where, in a way, I, I the reason that I'm fascinated by these kind of lo-fi horror games isn't because, you know, the owning class idea of people getting to have their own ideas. I mean, that's great and all, but like, that's not the end point to me. The end point to me is that people have realized and they're they're beginning to realize that no one was incapable Mm-hmm. That this whole time you could have been coding and you could have been doing art and you could make and release your own game. You really could learn all of these things. There's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Right? And yet when you get into the industry and they stratify you into a job, and this happens not just in the entertainment industry, but across the board in all jobs, oh, somebody yeah. along the line specializes you and they convince you you couldn't do anything else. That if you stop for a moment, that you wouldn't be able to keep up with the pace, that you would that you would just be fucked you know, out of the end, if you're an artist and you learn how to code, what are you doing? Right. You're not going to be a good enough artist to keep working if you act like that. Yeah. Uh, and that's a lie, you know? So I, I think that there's something to be said. There is a, a socialist uh, perspective of that that can be had. But I think the, the real struggle is, is finding a way to separate that from uh, petite bourgeois ideas, which I, I think going back to the AI discussion uh, to reorient to that for, for a sec. I think we're actually looking at that uh, right now as well. You know, mm-hmm. a, a lot of a lot of what AI is 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 petite bourgeois fantasy. I think at the at the hyper industrial level, they don't really care either way. It's like a nice fantasy to them. No, yeah, every but, everything uh, that comes from that entire sphere is the same way. The the Bitcoin, the NFTs, the whatever the fuck disruptive technology that comes out this year, that year. It, it is always just functionally get rich quick schemes so that untalented people can say like, I knew, you know, and, and they just gamble. You win the lottery and then you can jump in. You know, eh, we're all going to yeah. make it. Well, I, I, I look at, I look at this and I even see in the anti AI movement, there is a, a political struggle happening as well. Mm-hmm. And that political struggle is in how does the anti AI movement look like, right? You have some factions of people saying that AI is actually completely fine as long as it's ethically trained. You have another group of people saying that we need to ban it at the government level, 
And that if you talk about, you know, the, the union version of this, that you're detracting from the argument. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, your socialists and your union members, you know, saying, hey, uh, you really want to fight AI. Uh, I wouldn't bet on on waiting for the president to sort that shit out. Uh, you know, you could just collectivize and make demands at your company. Yeah, uh, the, the 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 waiting for power to finally turn and give you a knowing wink is definitely one of the biggest downsides to particularly like liberal political yeah. discourse in this country. You know, I well, vote, that, vote, do democracy. Is- but sorry, go ahead. Well, well not, I think you're you're right on the money. That that is the petite bourgeois struggle because when you look at every every major struggle uh, that we've had, especially in the last fifty years, uh, this is kind of the cadence of it, right? Mm-hmm. The cadence is you look at the AIDS movement, you have something similar happening. The petite bourgeois kind of step in and they start you know regulating who gets to have a say and who doesn't get to have a say, and really what they boiled it down to is individual negotiation and appealing to power. Yes, and here we are again. It's not surprising to me that the petite bourgeois faction of artists are anti-AI because to them, right, they're, what they make is bespoke and special and their, their way of attempting to refuse becoming proletarianized is uh, inevitably a petite bourgeois idea, right? But whether or not AI uh, gets accepted, which it almost certainly will because once you understand what capitalism is, it's hard not to see that coming mm-hmm. down the pipeline. Uh, you know, you, you begin to realize that you're, you're going to be proletarianized, right? And artists are really struggling with that. They're struggling to separate themselves from the idea of the meritocracy, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're at least at one point in, in recent history in our lives that it, at least some of that was true. You know, that if you had, you know, the popular kind of style or if you you had the resources to get very skilled at one thing or another, uh, you were more likely to get work. And, and people conflate that, I, I think, with, with the reality of, of what work is now. Yeah. No, no. Um, I agree with that. And I think also just as a clarification for everybody listening. Um, when we're talking about AI in this specific context, I mean, literally generative AI, things like chat, GPT, stable diffusion, uh, which are to, to explain how they work. They are not little minds, little independent, uh, digital imps that live, uh, in, in magic internet land that have learned how to draw the way that, uh, Nick does or how to write like I do. Basically what it is, is a program that recognizes to a degree how shape and form or how the structure of a sentence works. And then it just steals shit from other artists when they say they're training the machine. What they're doing is feeding in other IP that they did not create. They literally don't have no person that's made one of these structures has the ability or time to make the sheer amount of content that you need to jam into the fucking things in order to teach them how to learn. So it's, it's, it's already stolen IP basically uh, unprovably everywhere. And then it just photo moshes images together using yeah. basic Photoshop techniques. It looks really impressive if you just don't know how Photoshop works, but if you know how to, if you know how to do some fucking like meshing layering and, and how to use content aware fill and stuff, you can probably do all of these things faster 
And also the hands won't have 10 fingers and be connected somehow to the eyeballs. <laughs> well, in a, and even, in a bad way, not in a fun horror way, in a bad way. Well, and even as that goes away, even as, as uh, the AI has, is, is uh, trained uh, to, to get rid of, you know, those deficiencies, what the AI does is it copies the product, right? Yeah. So if you're an artist and you create a style and somebody feeds it into, you know, the machine, it's not creating a new piece of art. It's creating something that that's building off of the rules that you already set. And it doesn't actually even understand what the rules are. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just picking up on the visual quality of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's inconsistent. It doesn't know why you made that decision. So when you'd say, Oh, I want this piece of art to look like this other artist, it just goes, Oh, well, this, this artist uses, you know, uh, rounding strokes to make it look like it, it's something that you can touch. So puts that everywhere yeah you know? there there's no logic you know for why it was there or for how it was there it was just the literal depiction of it which is another part of that philosophical problem i was talking about it doesn't know why the artist is making the choices that it's making the philosophical problem is really that it was more important for the person who's throwing it into the machine that it looks literally like something that person would would have made right that they get their productive capability mm-hmm. but the philosophy of art, you know, the reason that you make the piece, the reason that you choose to use this technique or that technique to make this kind of mark or that kind of mark, it communicates something. It has an idea in it. And the artist is choosing to do these things and balance them out in such a way to create the effect that they're aiming for. Right. And you when you learn art, it's kind of like learning any language. You know, you're you're there's no right way to speak or, or even necessarily to write. Right. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's an art. There's there's a way that you're communicating something else, not the literal, you know, oh, there is a horse 50 meters across the plain. Right. You're saying, ah, I, I see this beautiful, you know, brown creature in the distance, you know, running or, something. you know, you, you have some feeling that you're communicating You have an image and a, a thought, something that's that's tied to your perception and what that meant to you. Yeah. And the machine doesn't understand that. And neither did the person who put it into the machine. Right. And the and thing is, just is, is, oh, yeah, sorry. Well, part of that is media literacy. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever read any Michael Parenti or, or Walter Benjamin or Grant. I, I, I religiously watched the Yellow Parenti channel on TikTok, which is just like a series of like three minute clips. It Michael Parenti goes so fucking hard. He, he it, doesn't miss. Reality is is one of the best things on this. And I, I, I think uh, Walter Benjamin's. Um, uh, art in the age of mechanical reproduction uh, is also very good. And also uh, there's a oh God, what's that guy's name? Uh, he did ways of seeing John Berger, right hmm. there. I think you might be able to find it on YouTube, but he, he did a show. Uh, I think it had five episodes called ways of seeing. Holy shit. Uh, I fucking, I didn't know. I didn't realize I was going to talk to the only socialist that's actually read this shit before. <laughs> tonight. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm stumped very, out here. <laughs> I'm very interested in this kind of stuff because, no, no, you know, I, I think what, what what got me in my socialist journey, right? Because it's not like I was always a socialist. I always yeah. had left-leaning ideas, but, it, you know, I, I wasn't principled. I, I had to learn this shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in that arc, I, I there there was always this, these hubris moments where I would speak to artists or I would go like, ah, yes, no one has ever thought about these modern problems before. Otherwise, we wouldn't have had them. And then you read some dude in 1930 
talking about exactly the problem that you're having today. And he's like calling that the Nazis are about to happen. And he's yeah. like, yeah, I can see that happening because of these things. And you go, oh, shit, I guess we're in trouble then, huh? Because he saw it. And look what happened there. <laughs> and they'll always include something that's like a, like the first quote. They're like, one may think that these modern problems we have today, no man has known about. But I have found that <laughs> my reading of this 2000 years ago. Um, it's wild. They want to keep that shit from you. You know what I mean? Yeah, or like the Luddites. You know, the way that we talk about Luddites is that they're anti-technology, but like really the problem with AI is the same problem that people had when it came to milling their, their uh, wheat, their grain, mm-hmm. right? The second that you have windmills and you have somebody who owns that windmill, which by the way is an important part of this whole AI discussion is who owns that shit, right? Yeah. Who does it benefit? They're actually right. technically kind of fucked on it so far because there's already court rulings basically that um, AI can be because it's already, you know, uh, things like uh, colorized mask and stuff, you know, in, in art programs and even spell check are technically AI um, gram, the grammar parts, especially they're there. But um, because they're not doing it for you, they can't be considered part of the current constructive process. And somebody fucking went and did that earlier. So uh, anything where the human product of it is not like 95% like minimum, uh, like provably to the end of it, uh, you can't claim it. It's it's either stolen or just naturally um, it's like a naturally occurring phenomena in the world, basically like a, yeah. like a, like a monkey taking a, a picture, that same sort of thing. It, it's just it's open game. Anybody, it, anyone can steal it. And it's the, like the irony, NFTs again. Yeah, well, the, the irony about automation in general is that, like, at, at the end of the day, like, we can have these court rulings, but, like, the industrialists, the capitalists, they're, they're going to keep getting the wins. Right? Mm-hmm. They're the people with the money, right? The millers, when they, when they got their windmills, right, they started charging people for the ability to mill their grain. And suddenly you have people burning down windmills, not because they're anti-technology, but because there's a systematic issue. Yeah. Right. And I, I think part of that is that what why have we chosen to automate this? There are many things that people want automated. Nobody in particularly enjoys having to spend eight to 12 hours at the factory right? Yeah. or in the field. And yet we've chosen to make the automation directed at writing and creativity and art. And part of that mistake is that uh, we're still believing that it had anything to do with creativity. Yeah. Right. Um, it doesn't. Right. It has everything to do with with the productive capability. When nothing's uh, being literally nothing's being created. It's not new. Yeah. You haven't made it's not new. You haven't made anything. And it's not just the the old standby, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Like, my man, I know there's been a million Sundays, but sometimes one of those Sundays is all mine. You know what I mean? And you like you can write about a beautiful flower that you saw the other day, despite the fact that a billion other people have done that, and still you would have your own flair to it. Yeah, right. and, and good yeah, or not, McDonald's it's still real. Yeah, I mean, art has just become the McDonald's cheeseburger. When you go to Ugh. one McDonald's and another McDonald's, your expectation is that it's going to be the same cheeseburger, mm-hmm. right? You don't go to, to like a, a gastro pub and expect a McDonald's cheeseburger, right? But this yes. is exactly the problem, and it's not just in art. It's in, it's in all sections. It, because now when I say gastro pub, there's actually an image in your head now for the kind of burger you're going to get. Yeah. And is that not exactly this kind of problem? Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I, I think that that ties into a, something that it, it'll feel like it's not related, but it really is. And I think that is it, it's the um, 
oh, I don't know how to articulate it. Somebody smarter than me probably already has, but the way I've seen it is it's people's um, overconfidence and uh, you know overestimation of their purchasing power. It's something I see a lot where someone says, you know, well, oh, how far is my my dollar going to get me? You know, because we're already always so fucking close to poverty that if you're not getting a perfect thing, you don't have enough resources to ever risk having an imperfect thing. So people don't want to take risks, you know, at the very bottom of society, which is really where we make our money. You know what I mean? Um well, that it, particularly me, I don't, I don't know if you're actually selling like individually to, 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 to people, but I mean, still, you know, in a Keynesian sense, the more people have the ability to buy my art product from me, you know, I can only sell one thing to one person. If 10 of them can buy it, that's way better than just one really rich guy who's still going to buy one. And so all these people are like, well, I don't fucking know, man. Do I really want to spend my time? watching a new show. I don't know if it's good or do I want to yeah. watch survivor season 87? You know what well, I'm saying? I, I think, I think in that right is there's this, this, uh, you know, we're all passing around the same $5, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the, in the smaller artists who maybe are, you know, they don't work at a studio or something. They're like commission oriented or something. Uh, it, it really is the same, you know, five, twenty, hundred dollar bill that's being passed around between all these artists. Uh, and that's just how it's been with the working class for a long time. But I, I think that when it comes to artisans, specifically when you talk about, you know, you're selling your product and you're, you're trying, especially if you're a commission artist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people doing who, who are surviving in that circle, I should say, are people who maybe don't take the biggest risks, right? Because you have to have some amount of, of consistent, and that's not to shit on their work or their quality or, or whatever, right? Uh, it, it's that it is it, 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 from a business perspective, practical. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think what's, what's interesting about this is that when I look at artists who have made big names for themselves or who are, are very large in the anti-AI movement, there's still the conception of, oh, well, I've made my product. This is my product and I'm selling it there. They, they conceive of themselves like a small business, mm-hmm. right? And I think the difference that, that I keep trying to point at, and I think there's a lot of resistance to it, even, even with artists now, because like, facing it is hard. To, to look at it, to acknowledge it, uh, makes you feel bad. It makes you feel unskilled or unworthy. That when I point at, at this issue, that it isn't your product anymore. When mm-hmm. you work on League of Legends or World of Warcraft or Call of Duty or whatever it is, it isn't your product anymore. It's all of your product. Right. It's yeah. every worker in that place's product. Right. And it's that collective work for collective benefit thing. You know, that's why I'm a socialist instead of right now where it's collective work for the benefit of one fucker with all the money. <laughs> yeah. Who also makes the decisions and will fucking just kick your legs out from underneath you for making them a buck, you know? Yeah. The, it, the dehumanization of it is really just wild. And I think people get that vibe and you get just so fucking nervous about it. Like I, my heart goes out to a lot of people and I know that this shit's not like something you shouldn't, you're going to immediately pick up, you know, somebody's not going to maybe necessarily listen to this and be like, well, fuck it, man. I'm going to give up on my, my idea to, to start up my own like little studio or whatever, just in case, blah, 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 blah. But like, man, uh, I, I've worked in collective spaces where it's everybody together for a common goal. It's even like in the military where my common goal was not to make money. 
it was to not die because <laughs> I made a dumb fucking decision and ended up in a war zone. I'm like, hey, you guys want to fucking work together all the time to get out of this? And we were like, yeah, yeah, this is yeah. let's make sure well, we think, go home. <laughs> I think this this is why we see more solidarity with more exploited workers in, in general. Right. Oh, yeah. Is that when you're in it together and you you really all know together that it's it, there is no say, <laughs> you know, it's not about the quality of your work as long as you've you've you know you it's not like you don't get to work right everybody has to work hard and apply themselves that's mm-hmm. true um but at, at that level you know it's hard not to have solidarity because you understand the exact position they're in well yeah you can't uh, you I can't think- sit in the system for long enough without you have to come up against its contradictions and the the just inherent fact that you are going to be exploited unless you got enough yeah, money well, I, I think I think artists are struggling with this one, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're, they're looking at that and they're going like, but I'm not like them, right? I'm special. My product is different, right? Yeah. It's, I'm, really I'm, about my, it's so centralized even still. Yeah. He's uh, a, you're, you're just a temporarily embarrassed billionaire. Yeah. And, and if not a billionaire, uh, somebody, somebody with clout, I, I, you know, the irony is I don't think that they want to be billionaires. I think they want to feel like they matter, mm-hmm. which isn't actually an unreasonable thing to say. Right. But it's it's what they're willing to do and the perspectives they're willing to adopt about the world that makes that bad. Right. Mm -hmm. Because loaded in that is like, well, what do they have to say about, you know, the quote unquote unskilled worker? I hate that shit. That's that's the world I come from. I I, I am the actually in the art world, not necessarily like you're like art art world, art world, but especially like in, in writing and shit. I I am uh, a popper to people. It's it's hilarious. It, when I was even in journalism, working in fucking North Dakota of all places, I would get the down the nose because I went to college on the GI Bill. Um, I don't I don't code switch. I always talk like this. I sound like a fucking asshole twenty four seven because I just work too hard to change the way that I talk. And and yeah. people give me the like. They give you this stink. And it's like, man, you you try to spit some hard game about like liberalism and, and, and the American worker, but I know you don't give a fuck about a coal miner. You don't well, give a shit about a plumber. Exactly. That is exactly what what this industry is at, at such a heightened level. Because mm-hmm. now it, it's not enough for, for them to be above, you know, one sector of workers or another sector of workers. Now it's they they've come to cannibalize themselves. Right. Yeah. Because now, you know, you'll have a UI artist and I've met amazing artists who work all kinds of jobs. Right. Who are not allowed to do their thing. Right. Yeah. But for whatever reason, people look at UI and they, they, they turn their nose up at it and they go, oh, I guess they're just not as good as the concept artists. You know, and the concept artists are better than, you know, ABC people. But above them, you have the viz dev artists or, you know, your principal artist or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it's always this this idea that they deserve to be there, that they have more merit. And really at the end of the day, a lot of the people who are going up that chain are the, just the people who have code switched. They failed upwards. I can't tell you how many times that I've met people who their entire thing is, is making every failure, uh, everybody else's faults and every success theirs. Um, and it's, it's admittedly harder to do this as an artist, but it's still possible. And I do want to, again, preface that, uh, that that isn't to say that there are are people in those positions who don't deserve it who, or or who aren't good, right? Mm-hmm. Or who didn't work hard. But I think the mistake that we keep making is pointing at that and attributing it to anything that had anything to do with your skill or your hard work. Um, well, yeah, you know, it's just it, some it, people it, think that they're more than labor. 
And that's really what it is. Because yeah. if you if you if you try to articulate to them, all right, well, if you don't respect the UI artist, what if they go on strike? Like, what do you mean they're going to go on strike? They just they stop showing up, and you can't hire any other ones because all the UI artists don't they don't cross the picket line. What do you do then? Do you not have UI? Who who does that? And well, they're like, well, that's maybe this exactly guy. You know, that, that's exactly the thing they haven't figured out yet, and I think they're getting closer, right? Yeah, but they haven't figured out. There's so much fear and so much of the conversation around, especially with artists, is is around uh, your ability to, ne- to negotiate because, oh, you have your special little project, mm-hmm. right? But uh, at the end of the day, I mean, if you got, you know, let's say you have 10 artists at a company and it's relatively large, even if your company is, you know, a thousand people, you know, but you have 10 artists, right? You get all 10 artists to go to, like, just say no to something. The company is going to have a hard time replacing you all. Right. Yeah. It, it's going to save them money to just capitulate. Uh, and I think that that so often when I hear anti-union uh, perspectives from from artists, it really does boil down to just this kind of abstracted fear of like, oh, well, what if, you know, blank or or because they, the whole way that they conceive of their art is, is I'm a small business. Right. Yeah. But you got to break that. You know, the second that you realize that you're not there for you. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it actually frees you to get the wins that you actually want. Um, but I think it's hard, you know, because to admit that uh, in, in the hegemony of this system feels a lot like saying that you weren't good enough to be special. Yes. But the thing is, is there, there is nobody that's special. You know what yeah. I mean? There's just people that are uh, victims of the great man throughout history yeah. And, you know, and just, you know, it's, it's because fucking, okay, Leonardo da Vinci was great. He was really, really good at all of the shit he does. I'm just going to assume everything about him is true, but who the fuck was taking records that we have kept up in Africa about the same people? Like what the fuck was going on in native America? I I don't fucking know. Who paid da Vinci? Yeah. Who paid da Vinci? Who allowed him to live? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, like Alexander the Great, right? We talk about Alexander the Great and he's like, oh, he conquered A, B and C thing. Right. And they go, Mm -hmm. well. Did he conquer that or did the people that he told to go and do it, do it? Yeah. The, the, the crew is out there. You know what I'm saying? And, and there's a lot more history is just way too, uh, you, you didn't, you didn't get it all together. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, the, it's just too many different who, who I, I bet Leonardo da Vinci had three or four people. He relied on like a motherfucker to go get him charcoal. You know what I mean? How, how the hell did he source hide to draw on vellum or whatever the hell, where did he get his paper? When was the last time you went to an art museum? Me? Uh, seven months ago ish. All right. Next, next time you go to a big museum, especially that has older pieces from 1800s and before pay close attention to the dates. If it's dated and you'll find that a lot of those masterpieces, some of those pieces they were working on for 20 years straight. If not, that's insane. Right. And I have several questions that need to be answered, right? Over the course of 20 years, I mean, one are, how are you sustaining that, right? And honestly, part of that is they had a, a different kind of structure of labor. You know, the, the master artist, quote unquote, would have people that did parts of the art for them. I didn't right? even fucking As mention a, that. Yeah, da, da Vinci had so many assistants because he would just make the little tiny thing and then they would they would do the whole big fucking sculpture, right? Well, yeah, because this it's a different economic system that they were working under. And honestly, I think part of the issue that we're seeing today is that that system that I was just describing 
was a proto-capitalism. You know, that mercantilism, I mean, really the artisan class were the first capitalists in that, in that way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so I think that there's a lot of, of uh, resistance to the idea of collective labor in, in the creative sphere uh, because there's, there's a lot of anxiety about what it means to be a master uh, where they, they disconnected it from, from the production side of things. They, yeah. they don't they don't have a, a, a class consciousness or an understanding that they are not capitalists, not anymore. Right. And they're not even the small capitalists. And I think what one of the many things that scares me about AI, it, it, it's not really. <clears throat> I mean, there, there's anxieties that we all have about, like, losing our work or being put on something that we fucking hate. I mean, I'm I can't talk about what I'm working on right now, but suffice to say, I have my own anxieties and fucking problems. Yeah. Right? Uh, tied to AI. But um, I, I think part of what scares the shit out of me is that when when you look at fascism, you know, every time it, it, it's happened. Right. And there's a lot of analysis about fascism that you can read about a lot of different perspectives about how it comes to be, why it comes to be. But almost universally, it is the petite bourgeois class looking to replace the actual bourgeois class. Mm-hmm. Right. And when I look at AI and I look at literally their stated goals, is that not the thing they're advocating for? Yeah, basically. Uh, I, and that is, you know, I, I do articulate that problem basically as it, as it affects me. But a lot of the reason that they have people in their corner is because, I, and I, I see the same thing you see and, and are talking about, is that, you know, they're on Twitter saying like, hey, this is how we knock those Hollywood fat cats off there. This is how we take back. Hollywood from the the liberal elites and blah, 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 blah. Like, hey, you don't need to fucking go through, you know, Lionsgate pictures. You can have the next thing from Lionsgate pictures just because you fucking imagined it. It's like, dude, just yeah. fuck, go to sleep and have a dream. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, something that that something something to build off of that, too. Right. Is that when you, you, when you get a communist in a room and you get a Republican in the room, right? some of the things that they believe in are actually not that far away from each other. Right. No. Both of us can realize that liberalism has contradictions and that there is an elite class of people who are fucking us. Right? Yes. The, the problem really starts with, I mean, it, it starts in a lot of places. I mean, class consciousness really is the, the base of this. I mean, class, class conflict in general and the contradictions that we, we have, but uh, their conception when they say liberal elite uh, really is, if you follow that through line of thought, it just becomes anti-Semitism at some point. Oh it, yeah, 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 yeah. I wasn't even getting it, into the whole. Uh, yeah, it, it's JQ all the way down. Ultimately. Oh yeah, or, oh yeah. Because, well, and because if it's at not the end of the day, anytime you have a, a shadowy cabal that that controls society, it, it might not be the Jews today, but at some point it will become them. Yeah, right? because the thing is, is there really is a, a, a quote unquote shadowy cabal, but they're not even shadowy. It's just the owners of multiple major companies. They have lobbyists. They'll tell you who well, they they're are. Not they're not even a cabal. I mean, yeah, they're not a cabal, really. But the but thing they, is, they, is, they have class solidarity, but like yeah. they're they're just their solidarity is not like 
they all meet together in a dark room with robes or some shit. No, they just inherently understand what is good for them. But the thing is, is once you've identified those individuals and you say, wow, hey, you know, it's it's these these major donors, fucking Koch brothers, all these fucking guys that are up here at the top. They're, they're very obviously they're going on Fox and friends and saying like, hey, man, fuck workers. Go work from home. I'm a, I'm a billionaire. Fuck them. I'm. Harlan, whatever the fuck, buy-in Supreme Court judges. But you go, uh, well, if I say that they did it, then I have to admit that capitalism's bad. So what if it wasn't them and it was actually someone else? Now, I don't know exactly who, but if I had to guess, maybe we, you know what I mean? And then it just... So cleverly pointed at communists and been like, they're in control of everything. They very clearly aren't. Right. If I was, you could go to fucking work on a train. <laughs> yeah. You know, but but here's 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 another interesting thing here, right? Is that they have class solidarity, but that doesn't mean that they're not fighting themselves. Like there are no. different factions of capitalists. Like you have outright fascists, you have progressives, right? And they're all they're all still owning class and they they still have that owning class solidarity, but they definitely are fighting each other right now. I mean, when mm-hmm. you look at like the Republicans and the Democrats, they're friends behind the curtains. But they are representing different factions of that class. So, um, again, everybody, this is Nick Boone. Nick, thanks for coming on. And again, that's at N-I-C-B-O-O-N-E uh, on Twitter. Yep. And uh, do you want to plug yourself before you head out of here? Yeah, you can also find me on uh, on Patreon uh, at Meet uh, and on Coffee uh, also at Meet. Uh, I believe Patreon might be at Nick Moon as well. Who knows? Um, I'm not very good about that yet, but thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This was a great talk and uh, would more than more than happy to be uh, to come back on and do another one of these sometime. Absolutely. Uh, thanks again for coming out. And um, yeah, I hope to see you again sometime soon. Okay, everybody. So that was the interview. I hope I hope you enjoyed it. If you're if you're here by now, I had to assume you had because there's you know it it, it it's a it's a fairly long one. It, it, it's got some meat to it. Not to not to make the pun. Um, let, just to reiterate some of the stuff that I said at the beginning, though, um, these things are very important to me. Um, it, it, I just have this you know idea in my head um because of the way i was raised uh, in conservative household um on the west side of cincinnati like literally i was born still during the existence of the soviet union even though it was only two years um you know the socialism as a word and communism and stuff like that they have just the most perfectly juicy uh wet oily razor with rust on it level of pejorative um, in the American lexicon, though I have seen in the last 10 years, especially that be um, very much extremely eroded in the consciousness of, of most Americans, even in the, uh, the sort of center of things, you know what I'm saying? I think out there, like everybody that's that's listening to this in general, you should understand that labor does have value, whether how, how you want to approach it. You know, if you you know, I'm not telling anybody that tomorrow, you know, you need to <laughs> the old capitalist standby from the 1960s of you're, you're everywhere. You're going to sell your house and, and give all the land away and you're going to be sharing your toothbrush with people. I'm not telling anyone to make any life changes 
that significant. Um, I would like, I would like you to just listen to the things that we said, um, take them in. And of course, I think I mentioned this at the beginning, but also here at the end, if you want to talk to me about any of this shit, if you're a little pissed off, if you're upset, if you're confused, if you're like, why the fuck would you say these things, Tyler, blah, 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 blah. Always, always, always just reach out to me. Um, I will, I will think more of you as a person, if you come to me, as a fan, as a listener, what have you, and, and send me an email and say, like, these are my specific problems with what you said. And this is why I feel like a little upset and maybe like a little let down by you um, politically in this respect. I will respect you infinitely more if you send me an email, westsidefairytales at gmail.com, westsidefairytales at gmail.com. I think most of you guys are on point for this. And this really is like an outro just for a few select people. But I really do want to hammer it home. That if you are you freaked out, you're weirded out, you're confused, you feel betrayed by by the way that I express myself politically in one of these episodes, an episode that you can skip, you don't have to listen to it. Um, and, and it's going to make you leave the podcast forever. Before you go, talk to me mano a mano person to person mano a mano means hand in hand by the way i don't know why they say that it feels like it's supposed to be face to face maybe it isn't a i don't know i don't know um but talk to me send me an email again westsidefairytales at gmail.com and we can we can hash it out i would love to talk to people about this stuff if you haven't been able to tell at least from this i'm not i'm not a i'm not a political um you know uh, griftery type I, I i am i am heartfelt i believe in these things uh, very very deeply very very deeply um because of my lifetime experiences in in the labor market as a as a as a quote-unquote low-skill worker which is insane because i if you, i have to know how to fucking operate every single version of a power tool you know what i'm saying but like as a low skill laborer, as a, uh, as a college educated and higher laborer, as an entertainment freelance laborer, as I am now who owns his own, um, owns his own, you know, owns his own labor, basically to say when I make something, it still belongs to me. And then I, as a, I have to bring it to the marketplace myself and sell it. You know, um, I, I found that these things hold true and have been, you know, basically true the entire time, even if I couldn't articulate them. And yeah, we're getting into the weeds again. Um, and I, I feel like that's enough disclaimer ultimately. Um, so I, I'm going to round this out by saying, I love you guys. New episode of the West side fairy tales, horror and dark fiction podcast episode 13 of sin carriers swamp. I believe should be swamp and then snake. Yeah. Swamp should be next though. Um, that should be coming out in about two ish weeks. I have to get a whole bunch of water noises ready. <laughs> if you enjoy this episode, if you enjoy the podcast in general, patreon.com slash West side fairy tales, you can get access to more content. Um, overall now by far, then is on the regular feed very soon. Um, probably next couple months, you're going to be able to read the first issue probably in whole, or I, I might release it piecemeal. I'm not sure. Uh, you will be able to read the first issue of the official West side fairy tales, um, comic come find me in hell, which I actually will be 
releasing. I'm drawing this in the background and um, I love it. And I think you guys will be really interested in it too. It takes place in the far, far flung, a post-apocalyptic future. Um, and the people who are in the West Side Fairy Tales um, beta reader program, you guys will be able to see a lot of those earlier. And as a matter of fact, I'm supposed to be uploading them to the Patreon right now. Um, I haven't been doing that because I'm, I'm still kind of solidifying the uh, overall look of things and making sure that they're basically clear. I know that's, that's still something I can put in the beta program, but um, I also wanted to make sure that I was actually going to finish it this time <laughs> because uh, if you guys don't know this, like a year ago, I got sick. I got COVID for the first time and I was out for like a month and in my fever dreams, I was wandering back and forth to a Wacom tablet and trying to teach myself how to draw. And it was horrible. It was very bad, <laughs> very bad effort. Um, but yeah, uh, if you want to check out, come find me in hell. Make sure you get on the Patreon so that you'll be there when it starts releasing. Um, hopefully in the next couple months or so. If you are in the West Side Fairy Tales uh, beta program, you can also get access to Black City, the unreleased West Side Fairy Tales novel. I have to do some talks with um, my friends, my publisher, my future publisher, in regard to our upcoming, my upcoming debut novel release of West by God. That's going to be coming out through Henlo Press sometime in the next, like, uh, sometime, like, sometime not in the next, but sometime in about uh, seven to eight months. That'll be, that'll be probably coming out. It's supposed to be fourth quarter 2023, but everything's kind of, you know, it's stalled because I am, as always, busier than shit. Can't fucking get time to do anything. Um, I don't know if we're going to be doing anything specific through the Patreon for that. Uh, I might be at least releasing some sample chapters, but we are going to be launching a Kickstarter. So just keep that in mind. The Kickstarter is going to get you some cool stuff. Definitely like signed copies and stuff. So those will be available. If you want to buy a book and just have a physical copy of the West side fairy tales um, to read, I suggest buying a copy of the eyes beneath my father's house. The Eyes Beneath My Father's House is available currently on Amazon.com, but very soon we will be re-releasing it in a uh, second edition through a much larger distribution service, and very possibly you'll be able to order it to a bookstore near you, which should be fucking awesome. Um, I know some people have been like, hey, I want to get that in my bookstore, my local bookstore. We're going to be putting that out. It's got its own ISBN and stuff, and that should be coming out. Well, actually, I guess at the end of the week, technically, but um, I'll be sending out some some information regarding that. And uh, if you if you have a local bookstore that you want um, the eyes beneath my father's house to appear in, tell your local bookstore and keep posted here. And I will I will try to send you um, a link for that so that they can uh, purchase it when it is available for purchase. It should be like twenty five bucks to buy uh, the paperback copy along with that um, sometime in the next year, as soon as I get the chance to actually lay it out um, because Ingram spark allows you to do some more stuff. I should have a a hardback, a real good slip cover fabric cover hardback edition 
of um, the eyes beneath my father's house for, for, for the true, the super fans, that thing is going to be fucking huge. It'll look great on a bookshelf, but obviously that with the big slip cover and stuff, that's going to take a whole bunch of um, rejiggering to make it look perfect. But um, yeah, man, all that said, I fucking love you guys. I love you guys to death. Thanks for sticking through this. Um, and my, uh, 20 minute apologia here and before the interview started, um, on the next HLC, we should be getting, hopefully if everything still goes well, uh, an interesting interview with, um, Chantal Ryan. Um, she is also, um, in the video game industry. She is a video game developer, um, very small scale in the indie scene. She's from Australia. So, um, shout out all my strains. Um, I'll be talking to her in the next few days and that'll be out next month. So look forward to my interview with Chantel coming up here shortly. Please make sure to follow Westside fairy tales at WS fairy tales on Twitter. Leave us a review, iTunes, Castbox, whatever you got, whatever you got going on right now. Just, just put a mental note in the back of your head. Once you stop driving, I know you're out there, you're driving right now. You're listening to this. You're like, ah, oh, shit. I can't believe the episode's almost over. I've been listening to this for like a day and a half but I still have half an hour before I get home and I don't want to listen Chantel to the Ryan. stations right now because I'm just, I'm, I'm in, I'm vibe. I'm listening to talking. I don't want to hear any music. I'm sorry. Could, I could, I could keep trying to talk longer for you. Specific, specific listener, but put a, put a little mental note in your head, cast box, um, Apple, iTunes, wherever you, whatever you listen to your podcast. If you're listening to this on YouTube, whatever it is, please take a second. Hop down there in the comments, like, subscribe, whatever it is, and uh, and leave a leave a nice review. Say, hey, this was good. Or you know, in the converse, I guess that well, everybody that was going to leave a bad review on this episode has already done so. So thank you, thank you also for putting us back in the uh, in the mix. Patreon.com slash Westside Fairy Tales, as I said before. Uh, Facebook um, is Westside Fairy Tales and the Westside Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club. And don't forget to join our Discord. Have a Discord. Uh, I'm in the Discord all the time. I, I'm constantly in there. So, really, one of the best ways to get a hold of me um, or or to talk about anything related to the podcast is to go to the Discord. Those links are going to be in the episode description. So, until next time, as always, stay safe out there.